containment breach. We've had a major containment breach. Oh my God. Welcome to Now Playing's The Stand Retrospective Series. There's bitter days ahead, death and terror, betrayal and tears, and not all of you will live through them. Part of the Stephen King Movie Retrospective Series. Is this a dream? Mayhap it is, mayhap it ain't. <laughs> Hosted by Arnie. I thought you were a nice guy. Sorry. You're not a nice guy? Stuart. Condescending ivory tower, wash it, you motherfucker! And Jacob. These men who have to go into the wilderness, this is God's will. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Well, let's get this party started. Listener discretion is advised. Help us to be true, dear Lord. Help us. Today, we're discussing The Stand, starring James Marsden, Odessa Young, Owen Teague, Alexander Skarsgård, Whoopi Goldberg, Amber Heard, Joven Adepo, Henry Zaga, Nat Wolf, Irene Bedard, Brad William Henke, and Greg Kinnear. Directed by Josh Boone, Tucker Gates, Daniel Crudy, and Bridget Savage Cole, Chris Fisher. Vincenzo Natali. My name is Arnie. Please do not be alarmed by my behavior. I have trouble reading social cues. And Stuart. And this is the co-host who, well, when I'm in a sticky situation, whether it's being lost in the sewers or having to watch another Stephen King movie, I, I just pretend I'm a Ninja Turtle. This is Jacob. <laughs> I love that they worked in a Ninja Turtle reference since in his expanded revised edition of The Stand, Stephen King removed his Howard the Duck reference and replaced it with a Ninja Turtles reference. <laughs> so are we going to have this be a Howard the Duck reference? I don't know how that's going to help you in the sewers. Ninja Turtles <laughs> makes a lot more sense. Still, many people proclaim this is still his best book out of over 80 published books. I know there's a lot of Stephen King diehards who will refer to the Gunslinger saga, but The Stand is up there, and we are back discussing a big budget adaptation after that ABC miniseries we reviewed back in 2014. Yeah, it's been a long time with Stephen King and a long time since we covered The Stand. I remember liking three-fourths of it. I mean, I wasn't as harsh as you, Jacob. I did end up giving that 1994 version a red arrow, largely because of the finale. Yeah, I re-listened to the show. That fourth episode killed it for you. It did. I mean, as it should. I don't regret that. I did go back and rewatch it in preparation for this new version, but I was still excited to be coming back to this. I still felt like a lot about Stephen King finales, they're underwhelming or disappointing, but there was a lot of things the 94 movie couldn't pull off that a 2021 series could really make sing on the screen. I knew coming into this, that Owen King is a producer on the show. Stephen King has co-writing and writing credit on several of the episodes, but Stephen King decided to write a new epilogue to his story because what that needed was more pages after the nuke went off, 
And I knew that there was going to be the final episode Stephen King himself wrote as an official continuation slash coda for The Stand. So I was very interested in this when this premiered. Yeah, I was excited by that prospect as well. I mean, I know at this point, I've been grousing many times. Boy, why didn't they take it to this direction? Boy, this doesn't make any sense. You are trapped if you want to keep adapting Stephen King into honoring some kind of fundamental take on what he put on the page. There are very few directors at this point that would have the creative freedom to get an adaptation and then be able to change it the way that Stanley Kubrick did The Shining. So if it's coming back, what was exciting about it was that King was at least going to revise the ending, which was the worst part of the story. And we now have more time to develop and presumably more money and hopefully better talent behind the camera to really pull off what is a big, messy, but undeniably appealing book. Although... I was a little nervous. Now, if you take away commercials and everything, the old series was 366 minutes. This new one, 501 minutes. So adding two and a half hours to what ABC did. And I felt ABC, yeah, they abridged some stuff, but I felt like they went pretty in-depth. Too in-depth would be my review, and it was. No, I definitely feel like if watching it again, for sure... When we finally get to Vegas, there was a lot of people that just sort of popped up to die. And I'm like, who are you? What is this? Like one of the people that ends up walking, the Ray character. I'm like, I don't remember this person at all. Not only were there storylines that needed elaboration on, but this is not network television. CBS has adapted it, but they're putting it on their streaming platform. So it's not bound to be audience friendly in the way that a 94 ABC miniseries would be. Yeah, this would have been R-rated if it came out as a theatrical film. Like, there's a lot of jerking off in this. Blowjobs going on in the background. Oh my God, too much jerking off. (laughs) Right. And so, yes, CBS, All Access, nine hours. They would have to have started this before we ever heard the words COVID, right? Yeah, this... It took six months to film in Vancouver. They started in September of 2019. Wow. Finished March 20th, 2020. Wow. Days before (laughs) that studio where they were shooting was shut down for COVID. Wow. Yeah, because I feel like if this was started in March, it would be so different. Yeah, very much so. Although I have theories that it is different. We're going to get into it. But they finished by the skin of their teeth before COVID shut them down. And then it was announced in August that, yeah, this was a Christmas time release. Get a couple episodes out in 2020. This was done like a weekly release. CBS All Access does that. They did it with Picard. They don't just drop them all to binge like Netflix. How did you guys watch it? Did anybody here watch it week to week? Nope. (laughs) No. Me either. I tried the first episode and was like, I'm going to wait. So I binged all of these episodes. You did this in a day? In one day, I woke up in the morning, started the stand, finished the last episode around 1 a.m. Wow. I took three days to do it. I did three episodes a night. Oh, how funny. That's exactly my remedy for it was like, I didn't want to do it all in one day because I, I mean, I don't feel like a lot of TV seasons are good when you binge like that, but I wanted to have enough time to savor it, to think about it in between 
but I didn't want nine weeks to pass either. So yeah, three a night seemed to make sense. And Arnie, from your viewing that you let out of the bag, and it was a stunner, was that they were skipping my favorite night. That this, because they're going to go for a non-chronological storytelling structure, they start in the free zone and we don't see the virus spread. I'd read that even before I saw the episode. It's the reason I tuned in the day the episode came out is I'm like, how are they going to do this? But in interviews I read before the show came out, everybody was comparing it to Lost. The way Lost started with the plane crash on the island And then each episode, you focused on one character, saw what was happening on the island, and it tied into flashbacks of their life before the flight that crashed, and that that's what they were going to do with the stand. They were going to start in Boulder, and then we were going to have flashbacks seeing how each person dealt with Captain Trips, how each person got to Boulder. And that's where I was like, I need to see how they're even doing that. And so that's how long I stuck around for episode one was to get a feel for it. Mm -hmm. But they weren't holding that close to the vest. I mean, I think they were trying to prepare people who know the book and who know the first miniseries that this was going to be different in that way. I mean, I'm already on record saying I love pandemic stories and and movies and and still you know we did a whole thing yeah (laughs) exactly and obviously now that we've all lived hopefully and continue to live through one that yeah this story would have a new resonance in this era but they didn't structure this stand to talk about that re-watching the miniseries i can say that the first two nights have that scary disaster movie feel that i like but the meat of the story does begin in the aftermath. And so if they're they're starting with the rebuilding of society in the free zone, it makes this a different feel. It is not a Stephen King horror story where people are vomiting and dropping dead. It is a Stephen King spiritual drama. Did you see those neck sacks? Those were pretty horrifying. Yeah, I didn't know Captain Tripp's brought goiters. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I simply mean... That we are not to see this as a horrific story, but as a spiritual quest. It is much more in line with his sort of Lord of the Rings kind of sagas like the Talisman, and far less on what I probably, as a pandemic genre lover, would have been more tempted to explore. Yeah, and if you recall my review of The Stand, both the book and the miniseries, my favorite part of both is the epidemic stuff, pandemic stuff. And that's what made me recommend the Stand miniseries was the first two nights were all about survival and society's collapse. And then the next two episodes weren't as good. And yeah, the fourth episode killed it for you, Stuart. I was able to coast along, but I realized that once the disease went away and we were dealing with Flag, especially the actor who played Flag in that last one, (laughs) I, I knew we were in a lesser story. And I'd say the same thing about the book. If you listen to my almost as long as this <laughs> miniseries Books and Nachos review there, I talk about how once the epidemic goes, King lost his way. And, you know, while many claim The Stand is his best novel, I do think that middle part drags a bit. And I was interested to see the one thing the ABC miniseries did was gloss over a lot of that. I was curious to see what they would do and what they would add new with the CBS version. Well then, Arnie, you give them the plot, and we will discuss Stand 2021. 
A group of survivors have gathered in Boulder, Colorado to rebuild society. Why is this? Well, as we're told through flashbacks, a super flu named Captain Trips escaped from a U.S. military base and spread throughout the nation, and perhaps the world, wiping out 99% of the population. But the remaining 1% are immune to the disease. Those with good hearts dreamt of a kindly 108-year-old Mother Abigail, played by Whoopi Goldberg, who told them to meet her in a small town outside Boulder called Hemingford Home. In that group, there's middle-aged Texan Stu Redmond, played by James Marsden, then pregnant early 20s main resident Franny Goldman, played by Odessa Young, and she was immune, but due to the death of her family, Fran tried to kill herself. She was saved by her creepy Peeping Tom neighbor Harold Lauder, played by Owen Teague. Then there's New York rock star Larry Underwood, played by Joven Adepo. Also, we meet Nick Andros, played by Henry Zaga, a deaf mute who had a bad run-in with some townies when Captain Tripp started. As the various groups journey to Hemingford home, they meet each other and pick up some others. Stu encounters a sociology professor named Glenn Bateman, played by Greg Kinnear. Larry encounters mysterious, troubled Nadine Cross, played by Amber Heard, and Nick runs into developmentally disabled Tom Cullen, played by Brad William Henke. All encounter troubles along the way, but make it safely to Boulder. But not everyone dreamt of Mother Abigail. Those with less pure souls dreamt of evil demon Randall Flagg, played by Alexander Skarsgård. Flagg recruits as his right-hand man Lloyd Henried, played by Nat Wolf, a stick-up man who Flagg saves from starving in an abandoned prison. Then there's the trash can man, an idiot savant when it comes to fire and explosive weapons, played by erstwhile Flash Ezra Miller. These evil folks, along with hundreds of others, take up residence in Sin City, Las Vegas. Both the good and bad groups work on creating a new society. In Boulder, Mother Abigail declares Stu, Fran, Larry, Nick, and Glenn as the five leaders responsible for rebuilding the town. Mother Abigail warns them about Flag and Vegas, claiming she speaks to God herself, yet she leaves the town to their own devices when she feels she sinned with pride and wanders out into the wilderness. With Mother Abigail's prophecy that Flag will attack Boulder, three spies are sent from Boulder to Las Vegas, including mentally handicapped Tom Cullen. Two of the spies are killed, but Tom escapes. But really, he doesn't do anybody good with what little information he gathered, because the real drama went down in Boulder. Nadine has been keeping a secret that since she was 12, she knew she was destined to be the bride of Flag and birth his heir. She's been communicating with the demon using a planchette, and he sends her to seduce, though not have vaginal intercourse with, Harold. Harold is an easy mark because he holds a grudge against the people of Boulder, because his heart's desire, Franny, has taken up with Stu. Harold makes a bomb and sets it to explode during a vigil for Mother Abigail, which would kill most of the residents and the entire council of New Boulder. But the sudden return of Mother Abigail causes most people to escape. Only Nick is killed in the blast. With that done, Harold and Nadine set off for Vegas, but Nadine betrays Harold, causing his motorcycle to crash. Nadine leaves the mortally wounded Harold to blow his own head off while she continues to Vegas to become the demon's baby mama. Mother Abigail, dying from her time in the wilderness, calls together the remaining members of the committee, Stu, Glenn, Fran, and Larry, as well as another person, Ray Bretner, played by Irene Bettard. Mother Abigail declares Stu, Glenn, Larry, and Ray must walk from Boulder to Las Vegas, 813 miles away, and along the way, Stu falls down a ravine and breaks his leg. At Stu's insistence, the other three continue to Vegas, where they're captured by Lloyd and his henchmen. But things aren't going too well for Flagg. 
Nadine's pregnancy turned painful, so she flung herself out his penthouse window, killing herself and Flagg's unborn son. And Flagg killed two of the bolder spies, but due to Tom Cullen's mental disability, Flagg cannot divine the identity of the third spy. During a mock trial, Lloyd shoots and kills Glenn, and Ray and Larry are sentenced to be publicly executed. During this execution spectacular, Trash Can Man shows up. He brought Flagg a gift a nuclear warhead that is leaking massive amounts of radiation. Then, a strange storm blows in. A glowing ball comes into the plaza, shooting lightning, killing Lloyd, wounding Flag, and killing many of their followers. The lightning then repeatedly strikes the warhead, detonating it, killing all the people in Vegas, including Ray and Larry. From a distance, Stu has a good vantage point to see the nuke light up the sky. Then Stu is found and rescued by Tom Cullen returning to Boulder having completed his spy mission. The two trek to Boulder where Franny has given birth to her baby. It seemed to be dying of Captain Trips, but then the doctors tell Franny that was a needless plot twist as the baby's now fine and humanity may yet survive this terrible plague. With Vegas destroyed, thousands of new people come to Boulder and Fran finds the dual tasks of motherhood and community leader to be too much. She decides she, Stu, and her baby will go back to Maine and start their own colony. Along the way to Maine, they stop at an abandoned house for supplies, but Fran falls down a well and passes out. In her dream, she's met by Flag, who escaped death in Vegas. He offers to fix her body and make sure she, Stu, and the baby are, get safely to Maine, but in exchange, Flag wants a kiss and permission to see through Franny's eyes from time to time. Franny resists Flag's enticing offer, and she is instead saved by a young girl who seems to be Mother Abigail reincarnated in the body of an adolescent. The girl heals Franny's wounds and then disappears, leaving Franny, Stu, and the baby to finish the trip to Maine as credits roll. And it's uh, largely the same story, yeah, that we experienced. Does it need to be nine hours if they're going to do the same stories again? I mean, that's rhetorical, right? Because no, if you're going to do the same story, don't make it longer unless you got something to add, which then it's not the same story. Well, they did add in quite a bit that was cut from the book last time. Not everything, but like there are some subplots that we're going to talk about that were not in the original, that were big parts of the book and should have added a lot of character development that was lost in that abridged version last time. And it just lets the drama breathe. I mean, I definitely think you can see in the later two nights, when they do give consideration to those storylines, sometimes too much perfunctory stuff adds up and leaves one feeling like it's so unsatisfying in that 1994 miniseries. So I would argue to give more time to sell the drama and the religious persecution probably is a good idea. Sure, if you're going to be able to let those things breathe and develop them more in a satisfying way, I could go with that. Here's my problem. It's not what they add. It's what they rejiggered here. Like They cut it up, it shuffled the cards on you, put them all over the place. Stuart, I have to concede, you were right. Like We need this pandemic breakout for this story. The fact that we're going to start in Colorado and just go in flashbacks and I never feel the craziness of Captain Tripp's getting out is a huge problem for me. Trying to get into this one, it's like, oh... We're not going to show you the exciting stuff. We'll give you little glimpses, but we're going to mix it with all the boring stuff. It's, it's all watered down, and that was a big problem for me in this first episode, just trying to get into it is, where's the hook? Like, give me something scary. Give me something to get my adrenaline going so I care about the outcome of these people. I agree, Jacob. And the first two nights, or the first two episodes, I guess, 
really reveal the outbreak of Captain Trips. We get to see more about its release and more about its effect in these two episodes than any other. But here's what I was saying before. When this was announced and when this was being shot, CBS said this was a 10-hour miniseries. And then in August, they said when they announced its release, it was down to nine episodes. I can't find any proof of this, but I firmly believe more of Captain Trips was shot. You think they cut it because of COVID? I think they cut it because of COVID, because they thought it might be tone deaf. They left in the bare minimum, but so few people, if any, die on screen because of Captain Trips. People who have Captain Trips get shot. People who have Captain Trips we find dead, but mostly we see people just discuss death. We don't see the death. I think they cut an hour out of this thing. Look, maybe it was the right decision. I know I wanted just to try to get into this, like wanted something more exciting, more something that because it feels tone deaf to me to try to just ignore it. Like, yeah, we're going to pretend this isn't going on right now, guys. This is just a happy fantasy. No, I kind of want to like live it because I'm living it now. Listen, there's nothing more gripping than the start of the book, which is the start of the ABC miniseries, which is a bad event happens at a U.S. military base. The flu gets out. Then we see it spread to stew. We barely glimpse that here. There are glimpses of people at a gas station. That had to be the start. Starting with Harold Lauder collecting bodies and talking about Blu-rays is the antithesis of a good opening. Here's what I would say. I think that the beginning, the image of rotting bodies in the church is where this miniseries lives. It is about that. It is about those that got chosen and that those did not. And we think of Captain Trips not as an event to live through, but in fact, I would say God's will. The big change for me is in the original miniseries, the focus was that this was a man-made plague and that by getting out of a military base, man did this to himself. And I don't know, maybe they did film that, Arnie. Maybe that would be seen as irresponsible given the conspiracies around COVID. But I feel like the message of this movie is that God makes the big decisions. He's the one at the chessboard and human beings only have enough free will to pick which side they want to be on. Oh, it really feels like that. Left behind with goiters? Yeah. No, yeah, I, I definitely feel like we're not to think about living through a pandemic And maybe that's the point. Like, I don't want to say it's over, but there seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe as an audience member, we're connecting to the fact that this horrible event has happened and we have to rebuild our society. It may actually be commenting on a time that we are just now entering. Which at the time of editing and things, they'd have no way to know. Probably optimistically, they thought we'd be there already. And yeah. Yes. I still think that they ducked. They still do call out stuff about this being a man-made plague, but it is de-emphasized. And yeah, starting with the dead bodies in the church, I had to really try to envision this from the point of view of somebody who hadn't read the book, who hadn't seen the first miniseries. And all three of us, two of us read the book, all three of us saw the first miniseries. So I went to my Stephen King Facebook group. It was hard, but there were King fans in there who hadn't gotten around to reading The Stand, who were too young to really care about some miniseries from the 90s, and were interested in seeing this adaptation. My big question for them after week one is, 
Can you follow what's going on? Do you understand in the way this is chopped up what is happening? And there was a lot of, no, we don't. We hope the future episodes are going to explain this. It was hard to follow. Coming into it with our knowledge, we know exactly why those bodies are dead in the church. We know where they're going. We know why there's a body crew. We know who Harold is and his his dichotomies. But somebody coming straight into this is was confused. Yeah, but that may not be a bad thing. I mean, I feel like audiences are smarter now. Non-chronological stories are more popular now, post-pulp fiction and such, because people have learned that it's a game, that putting the narrative together and figuring it out may take a while. And hopefully that's the thing that'll grip them. Because again, we're going to be robbed of the terror of a virus wiping people out by the millions. You want to see that. Like, we want to see, like, the horror. We want to see that outbreak. Again, king, horror. You set up the mystery with some rotting corpses in the church, but when you flash back five months earlier, then give us something sensational. The best part of the book and the last miniseries was Captain Trips. If it wasn't for Captain Trips, I don't know that I'd even like the novel. We're going to discuss it here at great length because there isn't Captain Trips to discuss. They made this two and a half hours longer while cutting out the stuff that was two hours and a half of the last miniseries. So they're really focusing on the building of Boulder and the building of Vegas, and that's not where the power of the stand lies. The power of the stand lies in an all-too-real nightmare scenario of Captain Trips. And so you have kneecapped this movie by deciding you're not going there. Whether it was before shooting, or whether it was in post because of COVID, either way, you've cut the balls off the stand. You've fundamentally changed it. Absolutely. This is something very different, and absolutely my favorite stuff is gone. So that makes me sad. But if you think about the stand in totality, I would say that this is much more clear of purpose by cutting all of that out about what the rest of the story was all about. All the stuff that I didn't like in night three and four, yeah, it's brave for them to say, we want to do that stuff right. And can we state what that purpose is? It is left behind, good Christian God versus evil Christian devil. Like, okay, if that's what you want, that's fine. You're going to get more of it. That's not the focus I want. That's not the story I want. Personally speaking, I always think stories about post-war are more interesting than war movies. It's harder to show rebuilding. It takes more talent. What it asked is for Stephen King to be better than he has been in other novels and areas. Again, by beginning sort of in the middle or the end, when his stories usually flag, no pun intended, this is the gauntlet that has been laid down by this first episode. Now, I want to point out this first episode and the last one are directed by the main producer, Josh Boone, who did begin his career in teen dramas. You know, Fault in Our Stars was a lovely little teen story. I was excited about him being involved until I saw... <laughs> New Mutants? <laughs> six months ago, yes. The worst X-Men movie uh, ever, maybe. My point is that it seems that he has started this story as one of those teen dramas. It feels like the story of a nerd that well, if you didn't know how he would ultimately end up, you might actually think that Harold Lauder was their hero, that he was somebody that prior to the pandemic was a loser, but has found his voice in the free zone. 
I will say this because I, I didn't go back and watch that original miniseries before I watched this one. Things would come back to me. But yes, Harold, I don't think he'll start off thinking he's a hero. Maybe he has a redemption story because he starts off as a peeping Tom. But that's what I thought. I'm like go trying to think back on watching that original miniseries. I'm like, okay, this is the one that has the redemption story because they're starting him off to be such an awful person. Yeah, we start off seeing him in the boulder free zone, as they call it, and he is on the cleanup crew. He gets sick and starts throwing up, right? That was Harold? Right, yeah, but then he went back in, did his work, and the foreman is up there like, this is a terrible job, this is awful, if anybody doesn't want to come back tomorrow, I'm not going to blame you. Harold was the very first person to raise his hand. So we see him as a hard worker and somebody who's liked in this free zone. He's, he gets a nickname of Hawk. Harold actually gets a friend here. Like he saves him from falling into a pit of bodies. And like this guy opens up and starts telling him, hey, when we get the power back, I'm going to start a drive in. And you start to connect. I do anyway. The idea that Harold was a lonely, bullied kid who sat around writing a manifesto about how things should be, and the free zone is his opportunity to make it manifest, that he could actually be the person, he could be Tom Cruise in this environment if he works hard enough. And you know what? In other hands, again, if you hadn't seen the previous story, you were watching this episode, you would believe we were on that journey at the start of this episode. At the very start. And I do want to say Owen Teague, he's an actor that's been in some stuff we reviewed. He was one of the greasers in It. Yeah, he came back as a zombie, Hockstetter. I don't necessarily like Owen Teague in this role, but he is such a step up from Parker Lewis, Corin Nemec. Yes. I mean, I can take <laughs> Owen Teague seriously, whereas Parker Lewis just never was able to be the evil greaser here. So... I do think that is an upgrade from the last one. But yeah, we jumped five months earlier and he's spying on Franny and he's jacking off to her picture. All of a sudden, he is not quite the hero we see and a little less redeemable when you got a peeping Tom fetish. They make him such a stalker, nice guy creep. Now, look, they could have totally redeemed him, and I thought, oh, maybe they're going to go that way with him, because I didn't really remember how this character turned out in the original miniseries. So I think, yes, they make him a very despicable character. I do think the script and directors, all that, they do a, a nice job of sometimes moving him towards that gray and not always having to be black and white with him. And what I appreciate about this retelling is both Harold's character and Nadine, we get a lot more time with them trying to wrestle with why they go with Flag. You know, like, he, he's on that border. Sometimes you feel like, ooh, peeping Tom. Sometimes you feel like, oh, bullied kid is finally going to become a man. And we know, because we read the books and saw the previous thing, and, and, and we know it's just not going to be changed that much. But I do think that the episode surprises you by the end when this character is going to declare, I'm going to kill Stu Redman. You wouldn't think that that would be where he'd land. Nothing does as good a job of it as the novel. When I was reading that novel, I actually thought, despite having read the book before and despite having seen the ABC miniseries, part of me was like, he's really turning good. Maybe this isn't going to go that way. He was my character to root for. Owen Teague, I don't know that his personality or maybe his 
energy on screen. I don't know that he ever comes across as safe. I always feel a danger around him, especially when he's around Franny. Yeah, he also has a moment where he stumbles across a cop car that's driven into an antique store. He breaks his laptop because he got that rejection letter, but he's going to go back to an old-fashioned typewriter and get a gun. So again, in terms of terminology with Stephen King, I see in one hand salvation and in one hand damnation. Writing could save him or he could go into a dark place and start killing people or, or you know, just doing something bad. And while he's Tapping out his manifesto, if you notice, there is a scorpion crawling around. I think that is Flag visiting him, tempting him. Flag will have a scorpion belt buckle. I did not catch that. I didn't put two and two together, but yeah, I, re- I saw the scorpion. I'm like, well, it is dangerous with those animals in desert climates. And then, yeah, the scorpion belt buckle certainly called attention to itself. And yeah, I think they downplay Flag shape-shifting in this one, but it's kind of there. But yes, his obsession with Franny is is unrequited. I guess we can't totally like him because Franny never really forgives him for being the weird younger brother of my best friend. But do we like Franny? Do you guys know Odessa Young? I looked her up. She's done some stuff. This is the first time I'm ever seeing her. And, you know, because we start with Harold, I find myself not liking Franny because of how mean she is to Harold. Hmm. I'd seen Odessa Young in one movie prior, and she was not a focal character. So what it meant to me was that she is not Molly Ringwald. By that, I mean she is not someone that brings star power or presence or baggage into the part. We are are watching her in the same way people would have watched Gary Sinise come into the role in 1994. She's an unknown talent, and so we're not sure how to feel about her. I like her because she is attentive to her family and uh, Harold does seem kind of weird. So I can understand why she doesn't want him around when he's like, you should be okay with all this death. You already had a brother that died. And, you know, he's just so quick to be like, you should be with me now that we're the only two people left in the world. I think it would help if there were more scenes of Franny with her dad, Franny with her boyfriend. Do we see a shot of Franny with her boyfriend? There is a brief moment where she looks at a photo of her with some guy, and that's the baby daddy. Okay, that's it. Well, you know, we jump around in time. For a while there, I'm like, oh, Stu got her pregnant. And yeah. then like, it occurred to me, like, no, that doesn't sync up. That's part of the game of the non-chronology, is that later we'll see her pregnant and think, oh, well, that's her settling into life here. No, she is pregnant in this moment. And I guess the fact that we don't know the father kind of gives her a Virgin Mary, almost like an immaculate conception kind of air about her she is divinely pregnant it doesn't matter who the father is she's carrying the baby that will save mankind i had another problem with odessa young and it's her last name she was young i mean i'm used to molly ringwald in this i felt like molly ringwald had more presence on screen odessa young i'm looking at her and i'm like compared to even harold She looked like the granddaughter of the person playing her father. I did look it up. Odessa Young is 21, which is the same age as Owen Teague playing Harold. And Harold's supposed to be 16 and much younger than her. But I can chalk that up to Harold was just immature and needed a babysitter his own age, I guess. But comparing Odessa Young to Molly Ringwald, Ringwald was 25 when she played Franny. 
So it's not that far apart. And then the character Franny was 21 in the book, so she's age-appropriate, but in these early scenes especially, I thought she was a high school student. I mean, this may be talking more about my age than her age, but she seemed really young. I'm having none of these issues. I I mean, she felt appropriate to me. She was the friend of the older sister. She's barely out of high school, is the way that I take it. But she has maybe, she's having a gap year that will become her life. And so, I don't know, I kind of liked her. I'm going to just go ahead and put it out there now. There's almost no one in this cast that I don't think does a better job than what we saw in 1994. She's way better than Molly Ringwald. Agreed. She ends up being better. She ends up being more believable. And like you said, she doesn't have the baggage. But I also don't feel that she has the screen presence to make me connect to Franny the way Molly Ringwald did. Say what you will about Molly Ringwald. She is forever trapped in the 80s, but she has star charisma and can carry a screen. I, she was terrible. I mean, really rotten in that stand. Like, I'm not knocking her for 16 Candles, but she was a real detriment. I hated Franny then, and so being blasé about her is a drastic improvement. And here they pull the suicide thing. That was not done in the original TV movie, but they actually take the step of showing her so despondent after burying her father in the lawn where he used to plant flowers. We get that our first shot, I think, of like what the disease does to you, like that bulging neck on his corpse. Ooh. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of suicide in this story, but I feel like by this coming first it allows a certain kind of empathy with the character. It helps. Again, I would have liked to have seen her loss and her emotional state before finding her with the bottle of pills. We're focusing on Harold here. Harold's the one making the plan. He's rehearsing what to say in a mirror so that he could convince Fran to come with him. So when he runs over to her house to convince her and has to break into her shower to see if she's okay and then stick his fingers down her throat to make her puke up the pills. I wish I could have felt her depression more than I did. Again, I think there would have been more with the father. I think there would have been more in the town if it hadn't been for Corona. Yeah, I think it's shorthand that we just understand with everyone dead, those that are left alive would have guilt and not a lot of optimism. And it is kind of a funny thing that he's got her like, finally, she's like, putting her head on his shoulder, living the fantasy he's been having. But is that love or is that just resignment? Like, is she just like, oh, right, I guess this is another form of suicide. I'll just follow Harold to Atlanta. And because they set Harold up as kind of this peeping Tom creep and he's got this gun, like, there is some tension. Like, when he shows up, again, I, I didn't feel like that original one had problems with a lot of the characters in that one here in this one i found like i was invested in certain little side stories and subplots like they they got me every once in a while and and so i thought there was some tension when these two finally have to get together to go to atlanta originally they're gonna head to the cdc well again we don't know at this point that they're not going to be together in boulder we've seen him in boulder and he's working the body crew we haven't seen fran yet And so when they leave town, the expectation would be that, like, this is his maturity, that, that, you know, like, he will end up being seen as some kind of savior for for others because he leaves the markers. He leaves the graffiti spray tags that let people know the way to Colorado in the free zone. So, again, you might be tempted to think that this is uh, all his story and that he's the hero of it. Well, he doesn't get the scene with J.K. Simmons, though. That's for Stu. Like, that's how you know he's the main character. 
Stu Redman, yes. We knew in the original miniseries he would be the main character because he's the first person to, to, you know, he meets patient zero. And so because he doesn't die when everyone else around him at the gas station contracts Captain Trips, yeah, he's, he's seen as miraculous, identified as some kind of savior just for that reason alone. And James Marsden. An upgrade from Gary Sinise? James Marsden, to me, is Cyclops. white bread. He's bland. He's oatmeal. He Yeah, Cyclops. Yeah, I mean, he after X-Men 3, he seemed to disappear for a long time. Sonic the Hedgehog, come on. He stole the screen <laughs> from Jim Carrey. <laughs> yeah, when I think about him now, I think about Sonic the Hedgehog and a role anyone could play. I think about him in Westworld in a role anyone could play. He's just the everyman. No, Westworld, actually, he did have some pathos there. I agree with you. He's very generic, uh, wholesome, heroic type. There's not a lot of dimension to him, which I guess makes uh, his stew kind of boring. Yeah, I like Gary Sinise more. I feel like he's more authentically Texas, possibly. But, uh, you know, it's a sideways move. I don't feel like Stu improves or declines much. Uh, it, it ends up not being a story where he is best featured. I, I forgot he was supposed to be Texan because Marsden does not play <laughs> Texan. He doesn't have the big belt buckle. He leaves that to flag. But here, again, we're starting in the middle of the story. We know from the last miniseries, he had been our patient zero. We saw Campion crash into the gas station. He was the one who survived and was taken to the government facility. And he was tested on and finally stopped cooperating, which is where we start here. He's already stopped cooperating. I actually feel that doesn't work anymore. You know, like when you were going to make the military responsible for it, when you were working into the theme that man did it to themselves, then uh, it was important to see the guy that was responsible and know in Stephen King fashion that he was going to put a bullet in his head because King loves vindictiveness. I mean, he likes revenge. And so he wasn't going to miss that. We had to have a front row seat of killing the person responsible for Captain Trips. Now that that's downplayed, and I really do feel like, again, it feels more like an act of God than the military industrial complex wants to kill us all. It's that post-Watergate, post-Vietnam sentiment that King wrote the book in is not our time. And so all of this stuff, what, what I like about these scenes is actually the humanity. I like Stu because he has this funny relationship with one of the doctors who thinks he can get the Nobel Prize and, you know, may become the next Fauci if he can just figure out how to turn this guy's miraculous health into a vaccine. Yeah, I agree. There are little moments like that that I enjoy. And I'm like, oh, this is good. It's it, But they're little moments and they're few and, and spread very far apart. That's my problem. Yeah, my thinking was he needs to go work for Moderna or one of the drug companies. I, it's funny how pre-corona I'd be like, yes, the government will save us and find a cure. And now I'm like, no, the government will write big checks so Big Pharma can find a cure. <laughs> yeah, we, we know how the government's going to respond. But and, and I agree, Artie, like trying to be fair. Like, what if we watch this and there was no COVID? Like, th that's one thing. But the reality is we've all lived through it. Thankfully, we, we made it through alive, the three of us here. There's a, I mean, my parents both had it. My dad got it twice. 
He was one of the very few that tested twice and got symptoms twice, ended up in the hospital. Like, I, I have feelings about this. So when I see it now in a movie and it's just it's very low key like this one is, it's actually kind of frustrating. Like, it actually kind of makes me angry because, like, we are feeling the outrage still of how our government responded. And this one, it, it just doesn't tap into that zeitgeist right now. Well, the zeitgeist is, Jacob. I think it very much does unintentionally. But what it puts on us... It's not these moments. Again, this is a hollow storyline now. I would actually argue Fran and and Hero could just meet Stu on the road and we would be none the worse for it. It Just, you know, skip all of this stuff because it doesn't matter where the virus came from. But I do think that, it again, what it sets the expectation is we now have to rebuild. The whole world was destroyed. Captain Trips was just, you know, the inciting incident. And now our story is trying to figure out who we want to be. I think that's very relevant now. I think that's a very interesting moment that we all find ourselves in trying to put this country back together. I think the best moment for structuring this non-chronologically comes in the end of this episode when we finally get that reveal that Stu and Franny are together, and Harold is having to make nice and pretend like he's happy for them. I'm looking at the baby bump and seething. I think that that's why you do it, is so that you can you can surprise people by saying, you thought you knew what the story was, and nope, that other guy who hadn't even met Franny yet winds up with her. Not fair. Yeah, when we get to the end of the episode... I agree. It's a little a little bit shocking to realize that it was supposed to be a shock because I know what happens with it. And Harold is visited by Flag, who is surrounded by strip club signs. Yeah, those glitter gulch neon signs from Vegas. <laughs> Alexander Skarsgård is what? A huge upgrade from Flag. A huge huge upgrade. I this was the thing that excited me most about The Stand being remade, is they got Alexander Skarsgård for Flag. I loved the series True Blood, absolutely. It got a little off-kilter the last seasons, but man, the first few seasons of that, I was an addict of it. And Skarsgård was tremendous as the lovably evil vampire, you know, versus the good boyfriend vampire. There was this... I'm evil and I'm going to revel in it, but I'm also in love with Suki, so I'm not going to be terribly bad kind of person, a bit of an anti-hero. This is who you need for Flag. I mean, he wears the denim better, at least. I, I Again, he doesn't mean, I didn't watch that show, so he doesn't mean a lot to me. I don't know what he brings to this. I feel like the character that he creates is like one part Trump and one part Elvis. <laughs> It would have been funny if it was Tom Cruise, right? Given the fact that Harold had found that tabloid and pinned up that grinning photo of Tom Cruise on the mirror and clearly wanted to be that Top Gun maverick. If they had actually gotten Tom to do it, I think it would have been a, a really a funny get. But but no, Skarsgård here is flag. Like, go in with what you're saying, Stuart, that, that they have... You know, recontextualize the story about being an act of God and not a man-made thing. I will say the very like last scene of the first episode is 
Campion, this soldier that escaped when this outbreak happened at a testing facility, we'll see that it was flag, like he had his foot blocking the door so it couldn't close, and it tempted Campion to running out, which ended up spreading this. So it does, again, kind of in that Job way, where God says, yeah, go down and do whatever you want to Job, and let's see what happens. Like, you know, it's the devil doing it, but yes, an act of God is how you could describe it. And I feel like that scene really emphasized that and helped it because one of my criticisms with the original miniseries is when like, oh yeah, a, a, a chain link fence was going to hold back a, a microscopic virus. No, that's silly. So in, in that way, they helped it by making this an act of God when we see Flag in this final scene holding that door open. I liked it. We don't see Skarsgård's face in this episode. We see a wolf. We see boots. no. At the very last shot, Arnie, when we're reliving the moment of the soldier running away, grabbing his family, he's driving and he sees that hitchhiker. That's Garsgard. That's right. He looked in the rearview mirror and suddenly that guy on the side of the road is in his backseat holding his baby. You're right. Okay, we do see him there. We don't see him as the boot, though. I just liked him as that influencer. I like the fact that Flag created the epidemic, or at least had a role in it, you know, one of the big themes of this is choice. Campion had the choice to run out the door. He knew his duty was to shut that door down, and here he actually did it, whereas in the book in the last one, he was like, no, I'm going to get my wife and baby and run. Here he did his duty, the door didn't close, he had choice to stay or go, he chose to leave, and thus put this plague upon the world, This miniseries, more than the original, does a better job of showing how much free will we really have. I don't feel like anybody could have stopped this plague from getting out. But yes, people have a choice as to whether they're going to act heroically or selfishly. Flag is always tempting you to say, hey, I'm holding the door for you. So will you listen to him? And we're going to end each episode with a song that's so on the nose, it hurts. (laughs) No, 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 no. Too obvious would be George Thorogood's Bad to the Bone. Like, that would be... They play R.E.M.'s It's the End of the World at one point. They don't play R.E.M. Stand. So, like, they, it wasn't the most obvious. I thought they would. I, I honestly thought it would end with R.E.M. Stand. It ends with R.E.M.'s It's the End of the World. But here, it's Billy Joel's The Stranger. It's all about... Which is a wonderfully moody song. I actually... Yeah, the whistling. I, I, I thought it was a, a solid choice. A good theme for Flag. You know what? I liked this the first episode because of the whistling. You know, it's not your poppy Billy Joel. You know, it is it is early Billy Joel. It's one of his better songs. And I liked it here. But man, by the time we get to episode six or seven, I'm slapping my forehead with some of these music choices. <laughs> okay. I appreciate them for the obvious ironies that they go for. It's not a series, as you've already commented. I'm already getting the vibe you guys don't think there's a lot of humor here or enough of it. It is the musical uh, moments that offer commentary. Yeah, if if this had... I don't know, more of a sense of humor, these musical choices would be fine. It's just so much of this series is so just dour and and slow and that then you come up with a pop song that f- fits it perfectly. It doesn't feel ironic. It feels like they're, they're really trying to sell that theme to you. I'll play devil's advocate while I didn't like some of the song choices. King did use song lyrics all around the stand. He would start each section of the stand with some song lyrics. Yeah, no fear of the reaper this time, though. Yeah, there is. It's there. Yeah, episode six, I believe. Oh, okay. I 
But I was like, at first, when I heard Don't Fear the Reaper, I was like, oh, man, you're just bowing down to that first one. And then I remembered, no, Stephen King started the novel with the Blue Oyster Cult lyrics. So playing devil's advocate, it's honestly paying tribute to King's literary style to bring in these obvious songs. And speaking of music, I do feel like the next character we meet, episode two, is all designed to tell the story of the pop star, Larry Underwood, who is kind of like Harold in that he has a backstory that may make you not like him. He's got a real drug habit. He may have plagiarized his bad music. And uh, he's more concerned about his album sales while New York is falling under a pandemic. Yeah, this is, I think, another upgrade from the ABC miniseries, but I don't know Joven Adepo. I didn't watch Watchmen on HBO. I haven't gotten to Overlord yet, so I don't know him. Yeah, he's the star of Overlord. But no, I like him here. They changed Larry. He's no longer quite a one-hit wonder. He is actually a rock star. But they added in this thing of a guy showing up claiming, you stole my song, and him ending up with Captain Trips. I don't feel like... Larry's a bad person here. In the book, Larry is such a linchpin because we're going to hear this line from his one night stand. You ain't no nice guy. And that line haunts him through the entire novel because he doesn't know if he's a good person or not. Here, just because he was accused of stealing a song because he steals the dying guy's drugs, you know, he's portrayed as a drug user, but I never see that have negative impact on him. I would put that on the actor. I think it's the reason why we don't believe this guy is going to turn to flag, even though he has some flag dreams and nightmares like everyone does. I The reason is that this actor just doesn't seem like he's got it in him. Like, even though he doesn't answer his mom, he is good to his mom ultimately. I think that's why we will overlook a lot of hedonistic behavior yeah he's a rock star so the fact that he's doing drugs and maybe stealing songs uh, sleeping with women whatever that's what rock stars do well his one night stand is very upset that he's leaving without giving her a kiss even though snot is just running down her nose yeah no no Yeah, it's so gross. I wouldn't kiss her either. But I was shocked to find out when I went back and listened to our original review, the first miniseries, that there were loan sharks chasing this character. Like, none of that (laughs) happens. He... He's in a very empty New York with some gunshot sound effects going off because they just don't have the budget to sell anything. But like having a conversation with a guy that escaped maybe a mental asylum that just wants to run around Yankee Stadium naked and jerk off onto home plate. Like that stuff's funny, but it's like not turning me either for or against Larry here. Yeah, I agree. And here I think New York could have again been so much more horrifying with this disease. His mother in the hospital, instead of just going and taking her home and she's pretty much dead immediately. There's a lot that was undersold with Larry's story here. And the whole you stole my song thing is new for this miniseries, never came out before. But I did like the Yankee Stadium yanker. I did like that guy who's like, I can do anything. I'm going to go to Yankee Stadium and jerk off on home plate. He's just walking around in a medical gown, too. Just no pants. Yeah, I don't know if he got out of the hospital or a mental asylum. And again, it offers this choice of like, you could do whatever you want. So what does this character want? Like, what can he do? I mean, part of it is he's an addict. So what he wants to do is hold on to that drug bag. I think it's what happens with that drug bag that ultimately pushes him to the side of the good. He meets Heather Graham because of it? Yeah, he meets Heather Graham because of it, and he loses Heather Graham because of it. 
Yeah, did you think because we had J.K. Simmons in the last episode and then he died, we're going to have Heather Graham, she's not going to make it out of this episode. I'm like, are we just going to have like a cameo, like like someone I'm going to recognize in every episode that just shows up for a couple of hours of filming and then dies? Suicide. I really did. I really thought that we were going to have a guest star every episode who was a name actor among all these others. And when I saw Heather Graham... I had to pause. I had to look her up. I did not recognize her. I'm like, I kind of recognize that face, but it did not remind me of Heather Graham. She's gotten older. Oh, yeah. I recognized her instantly, and I paused because I'm like, wait a second, wait a fucking second. The lady who Larry meets, Rita, in the book was supposed to be an older lady. You know, she lost a wealthy husband. She is an older lady, Arnie. We're older. <laughs> that, that's the realization. <laughs> yeah, fuck me. Fuck me. She's 51. What? She is 51 years old. Now, let me put this in perspective for you. Rue McClanahan was 51 during season one of The Golden Girls. I accept this. I understand I'm middle-aged. I realize Roller Girl is ready for Medicare. Like, I get it. I I accept it. It just always shocks me when I realize it over and over again. Oh, my God. So I went back to the book, and the book described Rita as probably 50s, but well taken care of, so she looked like she was in her 40s. And I'm like, God damn it, Heather Graham is age appropriate. Roller girl (laughs) is age appropriate to play this 50-something New York wife. That hurt me. She's pretty good. I At first, she's so weird. You know, we, she's artificial. Like, he just stumbles across her in Central Park. She's all in white. She's still kind of living her ladies who lunch routine. Like, you feel like she's probably never talked to a black person in her life, just lived in this, like, cage, just this privileged existence. And now the pandemic has robbed her of all of her security. She's got a gun in her handbag. She's probably already thinking of killing herself. But here comes this nice guy who is kind of famous. And yeah, I I think that their time together, it's brief, but I actually buy the chemistry. I like it. I actually like this a lot. And when talking about things expanded in the stand, Rita character completely excised from the ABC version. Here, we do have the time to spend with Rita and Larry and them hooking up in the ABC one, they cut this real short. He met Nadine in New York, and we introduced to her very early. But this time, we actually get to see this should be driving home that theme of you ain't no nice guy because he has sex with her and then tries to force her out of town. Although in this version, he's doing it also to rescue her from a gang of rapists, which is a nice thing to do. But her suicide is supposed to weigh on him that he's still not a nice guy. But we've seen him at the beginning, because this is a flashback, like, he's got Amber Heard and a little boy, like, hanging out with him, like, playing guitar, so, again, doing it like a flashback ruins that arc, like, is he a nice guy or not? I disagree, I disagree that it ruins it, because it creates a mystery of, why is he with Heather Graham in the past, but with Amber Heard later on? I think that that could be, if you're new to all this, if you're a complete newbie he did something sinister and took on a woman with a child like that seems like a very nice thing to do no but what happened did they have a fight where is she not only that but i'll be honest i couldn't tell the difference between amber heard and heather graham i was having a hard time at the beginning too (laughs) i didn't know it was two different women so there was a surprise to this 
I had trouble recognizing Amber Heard. Speaking of getting older, she's 34. Doesn't have a bright red wig on. I mean, I know we saw her in Aquaman a few years ago, but I mostly remember her from Drive Angry, which was she was much younger in. So I did have to like talk to Marjorie. I'm like, is that Amber Heard? I think that's Amber Heard. <laughs> and finally they say Nadine. I wouldn't know Amber Heard if she knocked on my door. I honestly... I know that she's in tabloids that I don't read. I know that she was wearing a terrible mermaid costume in Aquaman. And I think she was in the spirit, maybe. But I don't know who this woman is. And so, again, my impression was that Heather Graham was going to see Boulder. And to know that, yeah, like, first he leaves her in the sewers... You know, he just decides that, like, my way is better than yours, and I'm going to preserve myself, and you can go up there, and I'm not going to protect you. And then when he makes it through the sewers and they reconnect, it's his drugs that she ODs on. So I think that's the guilt. Now, the sewer trip is a rewrite, which they talked about in some interviews, because in the book, in the original one, it was the Lincoln Tunnel. They were leaving the Lincoln Tunnel. It was full of bodies. It was full of rats. Here, they decide to make it the sewer because the producers thought it was unrealistic that you would take the Lincoln Tunnel out of New York when there are so many bridges to choose from. They give it some excuse in the book and the miniseries, like, it's going to take so long to get to one of the bridges. And here, they're like, Stephen King did not know New York that well. There are other ways to get out of New York than the tunnel, so... We want the rat scene. It's an iconic scene from the stand. Let's do it in the sewer. I didn't even notice when Heather Graham disappeared and wasn't in the sewer anymore. I was so focused on the rats. Yeah, it's a gross moment. I mean, like, when when someone is literally going to drown in sewage, like, yeesh. And again, not letting go of that drug bag. Yeah, holding it above his head so it doesn't get wet. Right, right. He's still, like... Thinking, which is why I think Flag still has a handle on him. He sends a vision of his mother to spit out some rats at him. But then in the more recent storyline, we do see he's with Nadine and a little kid named Joe. And I thought that in this version, they were going to be a little nuclear family, but not quite. Well, we know right from the get-go, from the beginning of the episode, we see right before they arrive in Boulder, they kind of shacked up in some big box store, and she has a stone, much like was given to Harold. We know, like, oh, okay, if Flag has recruited Harold to kill Stu, then this is a no-good woman. Like, she is coming to Boulder you know, it's pretty obvious early on. They're asking her about, well, did you dream of Mother Abigail? She's like, oh, yeah. No, she did. <laughs> she, for a long time, has been courted by evil. And in fact, when we get her backstory, it goes back to being 12 in a girl's dormitory or something. Wasn't this the set for New Mutants? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. It probably was a cut scene. I mean, it really felt, I didn't know where these girls were, but there was like a guard outside and stone walls. I'm like, is this Juvie? Yeah, I thought it might be Juvie or something. Is this from the book? Because knowing that Flag was recruiting people a decade before this outbreak, it takes away the fact that it feels like this the devil's taking advantage of the situation and, and this is just the beginning steps to starting off this war between good and evil and where you're going to make your choice and take your stand. Oh, but no, she was recruited like 12 years ago. 
But of course, she has a choice, and we will see her waffle, even here in the free zone. She will have a moment where she's like, you know what, if I sleep with somebody else, I'm free of this contract. What is important is, she was told when she was 12, before she had sex with anybody, Nadine will be my queen. So she doesn't know who will be the king, but she's been saving herself. And so that's the contract she has. As long as I keep my virginity, I am on the path to this destiny where I'll be a queen to somebody who grabs planchettes and scares little girls and scrawls my name on the floor. I think it's a little bit cheap that we get to see Nadine's childhood, and that's the only person who we get a pre-trips flashback to. It doesn't matter what she did when trips broke out. That's what they tell us. The most important thing is she made a deal with the devil when she was 12, where the devil, you know, proposed to her and she accepted. And now she's in a Walmart camping. (laughs) Well, again, she's with a man, but she's not going to sleep with him. And that's going to be a tension that will continue on through the next several episodes. The other main character that's introduced in episode two not connected at all to the Boulder Free Zone. We have Lloyd Henry, played by Nat Wolf. Another actor I don't know. I just don't know this cast. No. Nope. But I will finally say, downgrade, this guy is no Miguel Ferrer. Oh, I like him. Yeah, I thought he was fine. I, I realized, I'm like, okay, this is the Miguel Ferrer role. Uh, it's it's not Miguel, but I thought this guy did well. And again, I don't want this to be a comedy, but I, I want some tones going throughout this film instead of it always being dour. Like, I thought it was comedic when he's locked in that jail and he has to drink that toilet water and eat his jail mate's leg and all that. Like, uh, that was some fun stuff. So I, I like Lloyd here. I like this actor. I thought he pulled it off. I blanched that they brought in Poke. And you gotta pokerize him. I'm like, I do not like it when King creates some of this language. It's it's cringe. I always felt it was cringe in his book. I hear when they're like, you better pokerize him, Lloyd. I am cringy. Well, I'm just gonna throw it out there since you, you're bringing that topic up. This book was what? Written in 78, 79? Published then. Started much earlier. Yeah, Captain Trips, the dog named Kojak, Baby Can You Dig Your Man. The terminology all needs a huge upgrade. Captain Trips is a Grateful Dead reference. Like all of this, like it was rooted in its time. And even the nuclear bomb, like everything that they're going to do. I'm like, there are many opportunities. If you had the desire to be current, to transform this so that it would connect with a modern audience. Man, this is pretty boomer. Like this, wouldn't you update this? It's 2021. Like Mm -hmm. make this feel recent. It doesn't. It almost makes you feel like, well, then set it in the 70s if you're going to call the dog Kojak. I mean, it just... Baby, do you have a WAP for your man? Yeah, baby, can you dig your man? I mean, really, you're going to still pull that. They're still going to have that song. So Nat Wolf is something that I think younger audiences would know. He did Paper Towns. He was in team projects. I think he had a Disney show or a Nickelodeon show or something like that. So he would have some cachet here. And I think it would surprise people to see that he's kind of gone Nick Cage, that like this is a gonzo performance. It's much bigger than Miguel Ferrer. Ferrer yeah. was always like grumpy. Uh, This guy is basically competing with Trash Can Man for, like, who can, like, do the campiest performance. Yeah, but there was something humanizing about his performance, too, when there were so many wooden performances in this, 
miniseries. Like, it was fun to see someone a little bit more lively. And mm-hmm. because I didn't remember everything from that, the book or the miniseries, I'm like, oh, this is going to be like the opposite of Harold. He's going to start bad, you know, start with the bad people and slowly become good. I, I guess he kind of has that arc. It, it mm-hmm. doesn't save his life at the end. It, no deathbed confessions that will save you in this story. So I, I was into that character because, yeah, he did stand out from the rest of the actors. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe this is a, another redemption story, but coming from the evil side, you know, in Las Vegas. Here's my problem with him is I like him as a bad guy, but in the book and in the 94 version, when Flag is picking his right-hand man, that person becomes basically a manager and like a mafioso. You know, if you watch Sopranos and things, when you're a mob boss, you are a boss. You are a manager. You are not this flipped out, kind of personality and so that's where i thought he would have been fine as poke but as lloyd as the person who's going to run flag's empire i think this guy's playing too broad it's an empire of hedonism i mean it's an empire where actually nobody matters but flag and so all these people that are promised things you'll also notice that he is not the first choice for this job we will later find out that in fact it was nick that he wanted to be his right-hand man and nick said no yeah so this guy is like second third fifth fifth string (laughs) you know in this day and age it doesn't matter if you get the job right but i mean he has an arc here and i worth pointing out i appreciate that he's just a a stick-up artist you know they come into this convenience store and people die only because of captain trips because the person he's robbing the store with has the virus he sneezes it sets off the gun It blows the person away, spatters the cashier in blood. But it's not Lloyd's gun. It's his crime partner's gun that shoots. That's what I'm saying. And then the crime partner is like, well, then now you have to kill. And so for much of this movie, this is a bad guy that hasn't actually taken a life yet. And is he capable of doing that? You will see him struggle with that for the episodes to come until they get to episode eight. They don't hit you over the head with it, is what I liked, you know? He's never quick to pull the trigger, but you have to really be paying attention to realize he's never killed anyone, not even when the guy sneezed. He's in prison, they call him a cop killer, but it was Poke who did all that shit. Yeah, they say he was framed, and he he wasn't really framed, but he got a bad rap. He didn't do the killing. And I think he started eating his cellmate after he died, so he didn't kill him. Yeah, oh no, I agree. To carve off that leg there, but he's turning to eating rats and cannibalism, stuck in a jail cell while everyone else dies. I love the timing because, you know, we're going through these stories character by character, but these are all intercut in the episode. And he is reaching for that rat during the same time we're cutting to Larry walking over all the rats in the sewer. Mm hmm. Yeah, I I agree. I think that there is something to the I don't want to say that I love the editing choices that you guys are denouncing. I'm not saying that it was a great idea to start in the free zone. But I understand the thinking of it. And sometimes, every now and then, juxtaposition and non-chronology do yield some interesting comparisons you wouldn't otherwise get between the characters. But we're not spending a whole lot of time in the free zone in these early episodes. It's like you just see glimpses of them in the free zone. And especially, you know, at the end of the episode, you get to see where they ended up in the free zone. But... Most of these episodes are flashback episodes. This one in particular feels heavy with Larry's story. 
But with Lloyd in prison, this is where we finally get to see Flag as a seducer, as a leader. This will be the first time he tries to talk somebody into helping him. And all of a sudden, I'm noticing something. Whether it was the director giving Skarsgård performance tips or whether Skarsgård came in and said, I am not going to play this like my character from True Blood. He is really low energy. He is not who I had imagined Flag to be. I thought his character from True Blood basically was Flag. And here, man, he is really just low energy. It's interesting the way he just has his back to Lloyd most of the time. And it's very matter of fact while talking to Lloyd about eating a cellmate and eating the rat and finally teasing him with a key. I think they're hiding him still. I mean, with with each scene and each episode, we're getting more and more. But I don't think we're to really know him yet. Well, the focus remains on Boulder, and what happens in Vegas doesn't really come up until halfway through. When we get to episode five, we finally can understand what Flag represents and and why you might expect him to be larger than life. Here, he's just sort of like the Marlboro Man or something. Like it's it's all denim and belt buckles and a smiley face pin, which again went out with the seventies. But at least his is animated, right? It winks and yeah. I, is this the emoji movie? <laughs> Like, when he gets horny, is it going to turn into an eggplant? <laughs> that would be funny. But yes, the have a nice day was very 70s. And honestly, that much denim and the big belt buckle was too. <laughs> no, I did like how they animated the face and it would like tell us what he was feeling at the moment. So Lloyd takes the stone. It turns to the key. He's let out. We get Melanie's brand new key, the roller skate song. Was this for Roller Girl or was this for getting out of prison? <laughs> Because that was a big song in Boogie Nights. So I'm like, is it for Heather Graham? Is it for Lloyd? It could go either way on that one. I had forgotten it's used in Boogie Nights. But we're on to episode three, blank page. We now have a new directing team. Two women that had put together a little movie. It's a murder mystery in Maine. Blow the Man Down. It was a Sundance film from last year. Before I knew they were involved in this, I was like, this kind of feels like a Stephen King thing. Maybe it was all the main accents, but they have managed to parlay that into directing the next two episodes. The less fun episodes. I do feel like they get the less interesting characters and the kind of the point in the story where not a lot is happening in Boulder. There's a guy in a yellow sports car that rides up and he's going to die talking about being actually he never mentions being crucified how do they figure that part out he's got the wounds in his wrist yeah it's it's definitely spike holes that went all the way through is in between the bones i mean and he drove stick I mean, at one point they talk about seeing someone like crucified on a electric wire pole or something and they don't show us it. Like, well, I guess we'll see some at the very end when we go to New Vegas, but like there's plenty of blood and tits and swearing in this. I don't know why you wouldn't show us someone actually being crucified. Again, something exciting, something to get my adrenaline going and get invested in the episode. I think they're hiding Vegas. Mistake. I want to know what the danger is. Lord of the Rings starts with a prologue telling me how badass Sauron is. So the rest of the film, I'm like, damn, how are they going to defeat this badass guy? Now, see, the thing is, this book and thus this miniseries is told primarily from the point of the good people. They don't know what's going on in Vegas. We don't really get to see Vegas until the spies go there in the book. We get to see Flag. Flag comes to them in dreams. Flag goes other places. 
But yeah, we do not see Vegas early on. A very interesting way to tell it. I do think that you could change this story around and make a much better movie of it. Like you were arguing last week, Stuart, change King's prose a little bit, take some risks, base the idea on it. But yeah, give us more of Flag. What is Flag doing? What is his endgame? Yeah, again, Star Wars, blow up Alderaan. You, do, you don't do that the last 10 minutes of the film. Like, you tell me early on, there's a danger. That thing's dangerous. That creates drama and conflict and tension and all those kinds of things that I want in a story. And they're just showing me this guy in denim walking around, but I don't know what the danger is until very late in this miniseries. And it, it's frustrating. Even when this guy shows up, you know, being crucified, that's not enough to tell me to get invested. He is a harbinger. That should be enough to let you know. I mean, what Star the town is that man isn't just something in our dreams he's real and if he's real and this guy like has a las vegas keychain then that's probably where he is it gets them on the path of thinking about how they could find him and creating the idea that they need to send spies to go investigate but i agree with you it would be nice to get to vegas faster than we will but episodes three and four are all about that build-up you would just have to have less characters and i am all about that i am all about eliminating glenn bateman and nick andros and tom cullen they pretty much did cut out nick andros <laughs> and glenn i mean we'll, we'll talk about him i don't I, I think his backstory is that he paints and that's it <laughs> In the original miniseries, he's real old. It's what, Ray Walston? Is that? Yeah, I had to pause after Heather Graham. I'm like, do not tell me that Greg Kinnear <laughs> is the age of Ray Walston. <laughs> yeah, there's no way. Yeah. He's 20 years younger than Ray Walston was in that. <laughs> but I agree. They don't really do much in this story. Uh, Stu, who we think is our main character, doesn't do much in this story. None of these people do. They can't because there's too many. No, it's all Deus Ex Machina. I mean, the, the it's what they do is so limited. But I do like Greg Kinnear in this. Ray Walston was one of my favorite actors in the last version. I thought he brought a charm and intelligence and wit to it. I mean, Emmy Award winning actor from Picket Fences. He's very good in that. I was like Greg Kinnear, but he's really good in this. I do like him in this. And I think he plays totally different than Ray Walston did but a lateral move because both are good. He's fine. He ultimately doesn't really matter. That's my problem is that he'll be referred to as a hippie. He's sort of out in nature painting, but I do feel like he is a character that is largely here to be the smart ass. And I guess Greg Kinnear had that role. The one piece that he gives them is he's painted Mother Abigail. And because they've all dreamed of her in the cornfield and he's put it to canvas, they can now say then maybe she's real. You know, like it's starting to make the supernatural feel possible in this post-apocalyptic world. And I, and I want to give credit to this. Like, again, it's longer. We got more time being devoted to characters. But some things like... I guess I've, I forgot about this until I listened to our old podcast, but they go to Nebraska first and then Colorado, like just go to Colorado, just get there. There's, there's nothing that happens in Nebraska from what I remember. It is even in the book, a needless diversion to get them there and then get mother Abigail to Boulder. I mean, it, it would be a lot cleaner if she was just right there. But the thing is though, when Stu meets Glenn, Glenn also has a painting of Franny who Stu had just met. Mm-hmm. 
And this is where we get a little bit more of Harold is not intentionally right. I think he thought that Franny wouldn't date him if he was the last man on Earth. But now he is the last man on Earth until Stu shows up with his dimples, as Harold calls out. Yeah, I thought that scene works because that romantic triangle has a payoff and is a big part of the story in Boulder. Lynn is, his wife is already dead long before the pandemic. He's got this dog. I don't know, like, what's his arc? He basically is there to, at the end, speechify and give voice to why Flag is a weak individual. I think he's supposed to bring a more thoughtful perspective. He's a sociology professor. He's supposed to know about societies rising and falling and is here to bring an educated point of view because most of our people here, we've got an everyman from Texas. We've got a 20-something from Maine who's pregnant. We've got a little petulant jerk. And so we need somebody who can actually look at patterns of behavior in society. Yeah, but he never really tells us anything. Like, he writes some speeches for Stu, but that's about it. Like, I never feel like... His knowledge is, is reveals anything in this miniseries. I like when he said, you know, find one person, they'll be content. Find two people, they'll fall in love. Find three people, they become a society. You know, some of that stuff, when looking at the rebuilding of a society post-apocalypse, I think his insights help provide a grounding to the stand that helps me believe what I'm seeing. If it's not true, it's at least adding verisimilitude. He will later, during a town hall, suggest that the body team, the people that are, you know, going into houses and getting rid of the corpses, now that that work is almost done, he will be the one to suggest we need cops and that they actually transition into being protectors of the city. That was kind of interesting. I get what you're saying, Arnie. I guess there's just not enough about seeing Boulder Free Zone work as a fledgling city for him to feel like one of the main people. We, we will find out that he is going to be one of the final four. And I just don't feel like... If it weren't Greg Kinnear, an actor who I barely know, but at least someone that I have seen before, I don't think I would pay attention to this Glenn at all. It is strange how Glenn has always been, in all the tellings, a major character in The Stand that we never saw before Stu encounters him. We don't know his backstory, except other than he says he had a wife, he's a widower, and with people gone, he's content to be with his dog and to paint, and Stu has to kind of push him out of that comfort zone. He would have just stayed there, possibly for the rest of his life and Kojak's life, if Stu hadn't kind of said, hey, there's this thing going on, why don't we go follow Harold's signs and see if we can catch up to them, because you painted Mother Abigail, you painted pregnant Franny, so let's hit the road. Yeah, when we jump back to present-day Boulder, he's there in the infirmary when she's getting ultrasound. He's he's in the mix. They will have powwows in his house, and he's part of the council that will be making decisions. Also in that council, someone that we're meeting for the first time, Nick Andros, Henry Zaga, not Rob Lowe, downgrade i gotta say and i'm not just bringing in any baggage from new mutants but rob Lowe again had the power to carry a screen even when not speaking with his eyes with his body language here henry zaga if he wasn't given so much screen time i wouldn't pay any attention to nick in this i feel like his 
backstory gets robbed because they take it out of a prison. He's no longer guarding the people who beat him up. They're just in a hospital and he's shown being a nice guy because he will tend to the guy who beat him up while that guy dies of Captain Trips. I just never think of Nick as important. I understand, when I watched the original The Stand miniseries and I read the book as I was watching it, and I read that Nick died, and I'm like, oh, no, no, don't take Vroblo. Don't do that. He's my favorite. And then it, when he died in that show, I was really upset that you took away my favorite character. And here, I don't even care when this guy dies. I didn't remember Nick. I'm like, oh, what does this guy do? Uh, oh, yeah, he's going to team up with Tom at some point. That's all I remembered. I forgot he was deaf. Forgot Rob Lowe played him. So I had none of that weighing on my mind. I thought he's fine. Ultimately, he, like every other character in the story, has nothing to do. I thought they set up some interesting things, you know, with Mother Abigail and the calling for spies, and she thinks they've offended God, and, like, Nick was supposed to be the next one in line. Like, a lot of interesting setup with no payoff, and that's a shame, but I was somewhat invested in him. I thought, like, he had an interesting setup to what he was supposed to represent for this new free society, but uh, again, there's no payoff. I had no idea that Rob Lowe was your, was your favorite in that. I always felt like that whole thing was like a tasteless joke that King couldn't drop. Like, I can't hear and you can't read, so we're just going to, like, figure it out on the road. Like, it just felt like a Abbott and Costello routine. Like, I really felt like Nick and Tom were attempting to be comic relief, but ultimately uncomfortable. I, I guess I would say I was uncomfortable. In that original miniseries, yeah. <laughs> yes, watching the disabilities be played for those kind of yucks. I think it's treated so much better here. <laughs> they got an actor that handled this material a lot not that like that guy from coach did it so awful but i don't he know did. it just felt more comedic <laughs> yeah he was real broad okay I, i'm trying to be nice that maybe he took it seriously but it feels more comedic here i feel for tom like again a character that has no story but like i like him when he's around he's nice enough i th thought they treated a lot more respectfully person with with a mental disability it doesn't come off as so funny m-o-o in -O spells better it's not great <laughs> I thought you couldn't beat Dauber from Coach. I was really worried <laughs> that you just could not get better. Couldn't beat? You thought that was the best mentally challenged Tom you could have? Yeah, I mean... I did, but you know what? This guy, Brad William Henke, he is very good. He plays it without overplaying it. Yeah. He's not simple Jack here. No. But yet he's lovable. You know, he's just a cuddly big guy. He's the gentle giant. And the fact that he has this speech that he gives every time he meets someone. And it's kind of like apologizing. If, you, if I make you uncomfortable, please let me know. I do not understand social cues. It becomes a bit of a running joke, but it also endears me to him. And so when they encounter julie who was shawnee smith in the last one and now is played by katherine mcnamara doing her best harley quinn <laughs> i really feel for tom during that yeah it doesn't feel so comedic this time around when yeah she's shooting at them like again i feel for tom and nick like they're shown as underdogs because of their different disabilities but i would have been down for more time of them on the road like i was taken by these characters this time that were just so awful in that original one they needed more. They really needed more. 
I'm glad they minimized them. I'm glad we only get this much. It is, I mean, in the end, I agree with you. Like, in small doses, this Tom has a sweetness to him. And Nick, similarly, we've skipped over, I think, a major part of his identity is the fact that he's an immigrant. He's an illegal immigrant. His mom died crossing the border. And so these are characters that are normally thought of as not being a part of society. It's where the name for the episode blank slate comes from like nick will say i you know like when has the world ever been interested in my gifts and it will be mother abigail that says it's a blank slate now you have the ability as a legal immigrant with a disability to now be my voice you can be that important in the new society you thought that was a big part of his story was being an illegal immigrant i thought it was a dropped line that they were doing because they have to have diversity in all movies now. And yes, I will admit, King's Stand is a very white book with a white 1994 adaptation. But here, I feel like they did a lot of, you know, intentional race changes, gender changes to try to make this politically correct. And throwing in that illegal immigrant thing was just another bit of virtue signaling. Yeah, that's a line that rolled off of me. Like, I didn't pay much attention to it. They never really call back to it. No, that's why I don't think it's a big thing. You know, you say it's a big part of his identity. It's a big thing, not because it's been made a big part of this story. This whole character is minimized. And I'm glad, because I don't really like him and never did. But I do think it's a big message of this, that people that felt they had no voice in the world as it was before pandemic can now be leaders. And keep in mind, like, he has a dream, and Flag wants him for Lloyd's job. Both the God figure and the devil figure think that Nick is the key, for some reason, I have no idea why, but Nick is the key to having a successful operation. But Julie, yeah, it's a shootout in a furniture store, followed by them running to a I think it's what, like a bus stop or something like that. They see the ad, Hemingford Home, and they know that Mother Abigail is real. And they know who her roommate is. Did you see that ad? Did you know who's on that ad? Yes. Stephen King. Yeah. In the ad for the nursing home, one of the old people gathered around the table is, yes, Stephen King. I'm glad that that's all that he does here. Okay, so he does get a cameo. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's not moving. It's just on an ad. He doesn't get any lines this time, yeah. When we get to Hemingford home, we don't see his corpse. There, oh. <laughs> All the residents have died except for Whoopi Goldberg. But this is where we finally start to see her as a character. Before, she's just been this spirit calling to people in the cornfield. And now we realize she has doubt. She is hoping that her messages are getting out there, but she's feeble and needs care and is running out of drugs and food. And Nick is the first one to find her. Nick is, the I think, special to her because he believed in her and followed her and made her real. I think that this place is the reason why episode four is called House of the Dead. This is the House of the Dead. And so you can't have, you can't rebuild here. We need to leave the nursing home. The reason why we go to Boulder is, I get that you'd want to go somewhere else. I guess Boulder makes sense. Yeah, Whoopi Goldberg, uh, you know, originally it was Ruby D, who, I'm not sure it's much of a difference, frankly, in presentation. I feel like this scene is the only moment where I see the human being and not the magical Negro stereotype that King can sometimes gravitate towards. They said they were intentionally trying to get away from that, and Whoopi was involved in character development to get away from that. And then I watched this, I'm like, 
did they change a goddamn thing? <laughs> Seems the same to me. This scene. I mean, one scene saying, I think I'm going to die here alone. If you can show that the character has some fear, then it humanizes them. And so I feel like here and maybe one other scene where the wolf appears on her bed, she looks a little f- afraid. But by and large, she has the certainty of her faith. And it's really for everyone else to wonder, is she the voice of God or are we crazy for doing whatever she says? I gotta say, though, you know, bringing up Whoopi, she's really good in this. Is she better than Ruby D? She's as good as Ruby D, but she's playing it very similarly. But I like Whoopi as an actress overall. I mean, you know, Jumpin' Jack Flash isn't exactly my jam, but she was... Sister Act? Sister Act 2? Really? Sister Act 1 was not bad, you know, okay? Take it for what you will. We're really gonna give Whoopi Goldberg compliments as an actress? Come on, she was a really good Guinan on Star Trek. I love Ghost. You're not going to get me to say a bad thing about Ghost. She poured drinks great. I mean, come on. It's the color purple and nothing else. Like, that's it. That's the one and only thing you can point to. No, I like Whoopi. I think she does well here. I like her performance here. She doesn't overplay, underplay. She's just a reassuring presence on screen, as is her character to those who come to New Boulder. What I like is that they're afraid of her. Like, they're like, when they get the idea, we're going to send spies to Vegas, they're like, we're not going to tell her because she's still waiting for, like, signals from God. And we're just not patient like that. We know that, like, if they're crucifying people and the guy that just drove up here and died said he's coming, we need to get ahead of that. So we're just going to go and send three people and... She never need to know. She can stay in her house. Which is odd because she previously said Nick is her eyes, ears, and voice. Anything Nick says, we're to take as if Mother Abigail said it. And I don't know if that means that there's like some kind of control going on. It never gets into it. But I would think if you have Nick in on that conversation, by saying Nick's her eyes and ears, she knows. No, no. Well, I mean, you could say that she's all-seeing and powerful like God, but I actually see her take him to task later. Yeah. When she finds out about it, she's mad at him specifically because he greenlights all three choices. We have three people going to Vegas that don't know each other. They're not collaborating. It's not a Wizard of Oz, follow the yellow brick road. They're going at different times under different identities. We'll start with uh, Dana Jurgens, a.k.a. Flashdance, because she's really into welding. I know Tom. He's a spy. These other two had names? Yeah. I feel like she has a pretty big storyline here. She's the only one with a flashback. True. We will see that they know her from the road because she basically, I mean, there were other people involved, but she basically saves Franny from sex slavery. There is an evil trucker named Garvey. That's right. I didn't realize that was her till later, though. Like, yeah, we get this big flashback, kind of an action scene where, yeah, this trucker fakes his own death so he could trick Franny and Harold and beats up Harold and is going to take... He's already got Dana and this other woman, and yeah, they fight back. I didn't even realize that was her till later. I'm like, oh, wait, wait, wait. That's why they showed us that flashback. It wasn't just to tell us more about Harold and Franny. Yeah, I liked that because, I mean, it showed the reconciliation between Harold and Stu because Stu and Glenn came and saved Harold's life. I also liked this was a modernization, and it just... 
I'm sorry, but it felt right that there will be people out there like, equality's the problem, and I'm tired of these fucking snowflakes. So we're back to the survival of the fittest. Harold, if you can beat me in a fight, you get the harem. Yeah, this is why I wish we got to spend more time traveling in post-apocalyptic America. Again, comment on our country through that, not through sitting around in town halls in Boulder. Yeah, so I liked that bit of backstory there. I liked that bit of post-apocalyptic because something big had to happen for Harold and Stu to agree to travel together, or at least Harold to agree to travel with Stu. And this guy was, I thought, an exciting piece of the story. But yes, it is the only time we do get to see Dana before she's picked as a spy. But she gets a lot more than the next spy, the judge who... Last time was played by Ozzie Davis. He had talks with people. I felt like he he was a character that I could follow and see what happened. This judge shows up and is like, I'll go. And then I think the next time we see her, she's dead. There's one quick glimpse in between. She's like literally a corpse dead. We don't see her get killed. It's just they drag in a body and it's her. I rewound. I'm like, did I miss this shit? No, there's clearly a scene of her driving in a Prius and then later she's sitting in a motel. I saw the scene in the motel, yes. No, don't forget those important character-motivating moments. I hear you. So the question is, why Sin 3? I'm like, this is the worst spy ever. I'm like, did she just want a paid vacation to Vegas? Why did she agree <laughs> to be a spy? She's not leaving the hotel. I wanted the scene of her shootout because you know she's at the penny slots. You know she fucking is. <laughs> she's the big old bag. That's what's so confusing. They have a whole scene with Flag, like uh, talking to the guy who supposedly shot her. Flag is like, no, this. I guess he's talking about Tom because he can't sense Tom, but he's like, this isn't the one I'm thinking of. Like, I'm like, wait, is that the wrong body? I've only seen this woman in a couple scenes otherwise did they get the wrong one like it's frustrating but let's talk about sending tom because boy 1994 they're like yeah we just need to hypnotize him and (laughs) then he'll just do what we want which is in the book yes it's bad (laughs) really awful yes it was awful in the book and there's no way that audiences will believe that these are the good guys if they feel like yes we're gonna stay here in boulder And the developmentally disabled person can be hypnotized against their will, not able to make a choice for themselves, and be sent into Sodom and Gomorrah. And told to kill. Yeah. Here, he seems to understand and seems to agree to what they're asking him to do. Yeah, except spies, they get intel. Someone who can't read can't get intel. Like, all the devil's got to do is write all his plans down and he's safe from Tom. Well, all they really need, I think, all they're looking for is to find out, is is Flag real, right? If they can just get visual confirmation that the man in their dreams is walking around in Vegas... And yeah, are there some crucified people there? Well, I think they already kind of know that. That's not true because Dana, like, she's going to become like a groupie of flags and get to go to the top floor. She sees him like she had a chance to run. She could confirm that's the man. No, she never had a chance to run. He's showing up on LCD screens all over Vegas. She could run before she got to flag is what he's saying. I mean, she did become like part of a polygamous relationship with Lloyd for months i think you know a lot of time is passing here in a very short amount of tv span it is a funny scene because dana looks like all right i gotta have a three-way let's go ahead and do this and then 
Julie is the other person there from the furniture store. Julie brings up Flag, and now Lloyd's like, fuck it, my dick's soft, let's go shopping. I actually feel like, I mean, there's no way they could have done this on ABC in 1994, but they kind of, like, this all feels right. The writer that comes in on episode five and starts characterizing this new Vegas, his background is from Jackass, and there does have that, like, it feels kind of like the running man. When you look down in the swimming pool and they're having these gladiator matches with people, like, chainsaws. And, yeah, all of that. People having sex in S&M gear out in public. All of that. It does feel edgy enough that you believe that, yeah, this is a place that both would be appealing to a certain type and would be very lawless and dangerous and a place you ultimately wouldn't want to stay. Listen, I'm going to say this. I would rather be in New Vegas than New Boulder. New Boulder looks dull. (laughs) New Boulder's full of work. New Boulder, you know, wants me to build my own fucking house. Take me to Vegas. You can play penny slots and get a blowjob at the same time. Like, I think I saw that happening in the background. I know. I'm down. It's the easy way out. I understand why lots of people would be tempted to that, but then you end up with a chainsaw cutting your head off. I mean, like, that's the thing. Which one, though, is truer to the novel? Because based on listening to the old podcast, there's no heroin use. Like, they would kill you if you did drugs. Like, they had a very strict morality, it seemed, from that original miniseries. Here, this one is totally hedonistic. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, all you want. Yeah, the book is more close to the 1994 one because Flag wanted order. Flag wanted troops. You know, and if you were a drug user, you were put out as bad. Which makes this one feel more simplistic, I'll I'll say. Having it just be so black and white. Either you do hard work, you eat by the sweat of your brow, or you get to have sex and drugs and party, and you might end up in a gladiator fight. But the one thing that I feel is better is Flag seems in good control. We talked about in the Last Stand adaptation, episode three, they're like, it's all falling apart. And we were like, it is? Here, it's not. Flag is not doing much. I'm really upset with the lack of use of Alexander Skarsgård. He's just floating in front of a window and meditating. I mean, he's not getting a whole lot to do. He tells Lloyd, go find the spies, but he's just up in his penthouse away from everyone, but everyone is devoted to him and afraid of him. What would you want him to be doing? I think interacting a little more. I'd like to see him. I'd like to know what his end game is. I'd like to know exactly what he wants. I don't know either side's end game. I know, like, in Colorado, they're trying to rebuild America, but I don't know what God's plan is in this. Like, okay, he called a community together. Now what? He won't even talk to his prophet. Like, she's got to go wander around in the woods. I don't know what either side wants, and that's a problem. Like, again, Lord of the Rings. we got to destroy a ring, or else evil will take over the whole world. Like, it, it's very clear-cut. Like, this, I don't know. There, there's a guy in Las Vegas that's maybe Satan, and they're having a good time, and that's bad because we believe in God, and... So we're going to walk, but we're not going to do anything because of our walk. Like, I don't know what the plot to this is. Whoopi Goldberg gets a line, and it's a big part of the book, and I wish that they showed it here. She says God's not talking to her, and we do get that. In the book, though, you really get to see Mother Abigail as people come and want to see her. They're like her supplicants, and she starts to really get into it that she is special, and that's why God stops talking to her. So when she goes out and says, I've sinned the sin of pride, she really did in the book. Here, I never see Whoopi sin the sin of pride. So when she says that, I'm a little lost. 
Yeah, she it feels like in this, the sin is that these spies went to New Vegas, which she didn't condone, and they try to tie it into the Bible when the Israelites went in and spied, when Moses was leading them around. There was a sin of pride. That was Moses taking credit for God having water come out of a rock. That's why they had to wander around for 40 years until Moses died. It was his punishment. There was a sin of pride. Here, I didn't understand why the sin of pride would be the spies, because that doesn't match up. She didn't even condone that act. No, no. The sin is, I know what God wants. And there is a lingering question. You have many characters ask in the sides at certain points, do we do what Mother Abigail does because it's God speaking through her? Or, like, are we kind of crazy having come all this way and devoted all of this to this dream that we're having? Like, to follow your dreams... It's not concrete. And so I do think what they're trying to capture is the idea that faith is based on something that is not certain. We cannot know for sure that when we profess to do God's work, it's what he wants. Yeah, that that is the definition of faith. But I I don't know. I don't feel like this is going to tackle that topic in any meaningful way. Again, if you think Left Behinds that really gets your feelings for God going and you find that inspiring, I feel like this fits in that same category. It's not going to ask tough questions. But I don't feel like it shows Mother Abigail's downfall when she goes wandering out in the woods for her one showdown with Flag. Yeah, it's not satisfying. That feels out of left field. Look. There are pieces, a lot of pieces on this chessboard, and if I wanted to really enjoy the game, I would have rearranged everything. I am trying to accept the fact that what I want out of this big, goopy, interesting mess is not going to transpire. They are going to quote-unquote honor that book, which means it will never do exactly what I would want to see with the things that are set in motion. And that's sad, but it's an adaptation of the stand. And at this point, I have accepted that they are trapped by King's words. They cannot expand it in ways that would make it more interesting. You get it. There's money, there's commerce, but this isn't art then. Like, this isn't someone had a vision and said, oh, I read The Stand and I know a way to tell it in a visually interesting manner in cinema instead of the written word. This this is just commerce then. This is to get you to pay your $12.99 for CBS All Access. I disagree with that. Yeah, presumably some people like The Stand and want to see it done faithfully. <laughs> then yes, read the book, but the book is not a movie and a movie is not a book. They're different things. Hey, man, you're singing in my choir. And they are adapting, they are changing some stuff, but as far as the book goes, this is the part where I really didn't like the book, is when we're spending all this time with these spies are sent to Vegas. What does any of it accomplish? Nothing! King's making it up as he goes. These spies accomplish nothing. That's why you don't pay tribute to the book. That's why you change it. That's why you adapt it to something more satisfying because you would never do this in a movie where you send three characters on a mission and then nothing happens because of it. It doesn't affect the story in any way. Like, you don't do that. But it's still more interesting than what's going on back in Boulder where there's, you know, having town hall meetings and setting up a police watch and having conversations about who elected us to run this town and then having Harold stand up, which made a lot more sense in the book because it was part of a master plan, having him stand up and saying, let's have the whole committee that Mother Abigail picked run this town. And, you know, King got in the weeds city building and the book went off the rails for it. 
But that scene kind of works in this for me. I because again, I'm I'm trying to pay attention to this chessboard of characters that I'm being told is important. So when Stu is trying to make this speech to the town hall and no one's listening, and then Larry, you know, he's the showman. He's the musician. He knows how to warm a crowd up and get them on your side. And he gets out there and he's like, hey, let's hear it for the first responders. Yeah, you know, he does that whole thing, you know, that politician thing. Like, I found that really interesting. I wish these actions and these characters' moments ended up meaning something by the end. But episode to episode, I'm finding things like even in this town hall stuff that I do like. Yeah, I feel like I get the frustration and have let go of the pain of saying these many of these characters will never amount to anything. I can just appreciate now that, like, when we do see New Vegas, it looks pretty cool, right? Like, the moments that we get, soundtrack to Kiss, Lick It Up, and watching Dana put beer bottle glass in her neck and all of that. Like, it's just, it kind of works in just setting up a debaucherous antithesis to Boulder. Like, that's the point, is that we have two realms, one that is clearly based on devotion and one that is based on animal lust. What I can tell you is, again, I didn't watch these without getting up, you know, nine hours of television. I did take little breaks, but the first three episodes, I was into it, intrigued by the differences in storytelling, the flashbacks, any changes to characters. But this part of the miniseries here is dragging. By the time we get to episode five, I'm like, will Harold please blow some shit up? See, I was still into those moments with Nadine and Harold. Like, they flirt with going good. So some of that stuff held my interest. I'm not saying it's all great, the stuff in Colorado. But any time where you, you hit that there might be a character arc, I get excited because all these characters are pointless by the end. So, like, episode by episode, I found moments that I really got into. I agree, and I like Nadine and Harold's thing here, and I didn't call it out. But Amber Heard, as much as I may not like what I hear of her personal life, huge upgrade to Laura San Giacomo. Huge. Yeah, you did not like her in the last one. I feel like there is a humanizing moment here, and it comes for Harold. In that as they're plotting, I'm like, yeah, I know this story, and... Yeah, it's going to take a while, but they're going to gather all these explosions. They do something, I don't remember it from the book, but they did not do it in the 94 movie. It's not in the book. Yeah, that best friend, that Teddy, played by Stephen King in the 94 movie, who gets to live all the way to the end, I was not expecting, but it's kind of perfect that this guy that had been crushing on Nadine and was so, like, he put on the ski jacket and was like, hey, we're Baywatch Boulder. Like, he was really, he had the dream of the movie theater. Everything about him was kind of like, his aspirations were just a little too grand. You knew he wasn't going to get to what he wanted to do, but I thought that he would live. And so the fact that Nadine is going to kill him when they're caught stealing the dynamite, yeah, I thought that really dramatically worked. Yeah, I did too. And the fact that he still doesn't know when he shot that Harold's in on it. And his last words are Hawk run, you know, thinking that she's going to kill you too. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. I really got into that moment. Yeah, I felt like that was a moment that helped in what I agree is just a problematic middle of that novel. Arnie, you are right to call out that there are a lot of things here that are sluggish and don't need to be. I don't feel like watching the building of a town is a boring thing. Some of my favorite movies... Cave and Mrs. Miller is a great movie about that very thing. So I can be really drawn into movies about a location. 
But without serious reconstruction, the stand will not do that. It will not offer the insights and the ideas that I want. So I savor the little moments when they come, and I savor the fact that at least the actors are committed in ways that the 94 cast, you know, they were just directed to be very cartoonish. They were very broadly drawn. So it's somewhat that the actors weren't very good and somewhat that in 94 they were just trying to do something a little less real. And here, for better or for worse, we're getting a dramatically earnest retelling. That is punctuated by Mother Abigail going off in the woods saying, God doesn't speak to me. And then they play the song, Give Me Little Sign. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, again, sometimes they go for too cute. But sometimes I feel like the musical choices really work. I like the band Beach House and... It's used really effectively. It's all over the place. Like TV itself, you can find yourself watching a season and be, well, that episode wasn't very good, and then get pulled back again the next time because one of your characters does something interesting. Sometimes you can be carried along just by a subplot. And I think, yeah, what is kind of interesting in Boulder is the fact that even though we know Nadine and Harold are probably going to blow it all up, They do have those moments where like, yeah, you're my friend and I didn't want you dead. Or, you know, Nadine keeps thinking about going back to Larry and maybe sleeping with him. I feel like it's overcomplicated in Boulder and that they would have been better to cut some of this stuff. But Franny suspecting Harold and sending Larry into Harold's house and then going into Harold's house herself, all of this rigmarole, although I like that they've updated it for the 21st century, Harold has ring cams. So when somebody breaks into his house, he knows. Mm-hmm. And teddy bear spy cams that he places in their house and films them in their bedroom. Yeah, I agree. It's a way of extending the story when what you really want to do is get to it. I actually feel like spending three episodes on getting the explosives to blow up Boulder is the wrong impulse. It would be more daring to spend three episodes on the walk. Yes. Having those people walking to Vegas and learning things about America and what they might want to be. Learning on that journey that's so important that it requires their faith in God and to go without supplies. That would be where I would spend my time. It wouldn't be waiting for Harold to do what we know he'll probably what he's announced he's going to do since the first episode. Yeah, it's it's a lot of treading water here. Uh, the Vegas stuff, getting introduced to Vegas is the... Yeah, it helps. That Vegas stuff helps me like the middle of this miniseries. That's the storyline I like when this stuff is like, oh, another scene of Nadine and Larry talking about what might have been. Okay. Nadine's struggle here is so much more interesting than Harold's has ever been because Nadine does go over to Larry and try to sleep with him, which would sully her and she's no longer Flag's bride. And then when she knows the bomb's going off, she goes out of her way to make sure the children aren't there. She's a school teacher, and as evil as she is, as much of Flag's bride as she is, she does not want Joe or the other school kids to die in the explosion. Yeah, thank goodness they saved all those movies because they're going to have a movie night for the kids. And very appropriate time bandits. They got the scene where the devil is addressing everyone. It's very much a movie about God versus the devil. But Nick, I think he's the only one that dies in this one. Like, Yeah, Nick is just like slow and looking around. 
Ray goes into the room and says, Nick, look, Mother Abigail's back. Because Ray and Nick have been having this argument because Ray is constantly searching for Mother Abigail. And Nick is holding up the note Mother Abigail left that says, don't look for me. And so Nick is, in his mind, honoring Mother Abigail. Ray comes in, tells Nick, we found Mother Abigail. Nick smiles and stays sitting there and eventually slowly wanders out. No, but then gets distracted by the piano. Earlier... Joe is playing the piano and Nadine comes over and Mother Abigail is there and Mother Abigail is giving her this speech about choice. It's all about choice. Like Mother Abigail knows what Nadine's going through. Mother Abigail knows all and she's not going to say it outright, but tells Nadine, you know, you have choice. And then she talks about the piano and Mother Abigail goes, I always leave the top open. It seems to reassure the children to see the hammers hitting the strings. And what Nick notices is somebody put the lid down. But so we're faked out here. There was no bomb in the poster tube that Nadine set down. Somehow off screen, we're never shown how they got this bomb in the piano. I think it was in the poster tube. And then somehow it got put in a piano. I don't know who's putting poster tubes in pianos, but okay. The poster tube is still sitting out because we see that. So the bomb was put into that piano outside the poster tube. For whatever the machinations that got all of this arranged... It's Mother Abigail coming back that saves everyone because they all go rushing to her side. And Nick dies, I mean, without honor. Like, his death is sad. We didn't want him dead. Is he ever reflected on? Like, yeah, it feels like he's out of the film now. No. He made such a little impact because the backstory was rushed. He came in late. He did very little in the movie. And so when he dies, it's like... All right, I don't really care. And some other people did die. I mean, you get to see some people engulfed in flame outside the house. Yeah, some bad CGI bodies being thrown by the explosion. Yeah, but Mother Abigail came back, and so most people were racing to her. Who has a vigil indoors? Well, I think it was just at her house, wasn't it? (laughs) They were having a vigil for Mother Abigail, so they'd set off the bomb. But who has a vigil indoors? I've never been to an indoor vigil With hundreds of people. You do this in an outdoor area. If there wasn't a bomb, they would have burned the place down. And so I did like the moment when we cut to what should be the drive-in. You know, there's this overlook and it's where Teddy wanted to build the drive-in movie theater. It's the perfect place for Harold to set off the bomb and watch the explosion from afar. He has a really interesting moment in that he kind of turns on Nadine. Before Nadine betrays him, he tells her... That, like, you know, Flag's going to get me a real hottie, and you're going to be stuck with him. And he, my, my girl will be better looking than you are. Like, there's something, you can feel it already going sour there, because he blames her, I think, for, even though he made the choice to, to kill Stu. And, I mean, I think that's, in his mind, what he was doing when he hit that button. He had protected Franny, and he was killing Stu, but I think he resented Nadine for killing Teddy. I think that the idea of losing his friend never went away. It helps when you have a good scene that says, oh, Harold is done with her. And rather than just getting a vibe. So I feel like in this scene, we see very clearly that they're going to Vegas very, very bitter. And then she does what she's going to do. I love one change here that has always bugged me. You know, in book, both movies, when that bomb goes off, Harold and his ego left a walkie-talkie there so that people could hear him say, my name is Harold Lauder, and I do this of my own free will. 
And I like that. I like that this is him saying, I'm not being manipulated. I am, you know, he wanted to kill Stu before Nadine ever touched his junk. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. If people are just chess pieces being manipulated by gods and devils, it's not very satisfying. They have to make choices. Yeah, but is this really a choice? I, I guess to push the button's a choice, but he's, again, I, I don't know. I haven't blown anything up, but I also haven't had the devil come and promise me anything, like, if I blew something up. It is. The devil didn't promise him anything. The devil gave him Nadine for a while, loaned her out, but never promised him anything beyond, you know, you can fuck her up the ass and... So when he says he's going to get a, a, a girl that looks that makes her look like a potato sack, that wasn't a promise he was given? He's just assuming that? Okay. Nadine said that after they, they blew up the town, they would go to New Vegas. So he's putting one and one together and say, that's what's at the end of the rainbow. But... When she betrays him here, I like this better because in the 94 version, you know, Flag appeared and made just like a vision and made Corin Nemec crash. Here, she races. He doesn't pay attention. He flies off. He's dying. He writes his last words. And in the book and in the last one, his last words always pissed me off. He'd written, forgive me. I was misled. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, these are the weakest last words. Is it just saying that you are an idiot because you're like blowing things up? I do this of my own free will. And then all of a sudden you die and it's I was misled. I'm like, what? The? Yeah, that's really cheap. And I agree with you. It's nice that he takes some ownership and calls himself Hawk. Yeah, his last words are, I let myself be misled. Right. He talks about his mistakes and his choice. If there's a theme to this whole thing, and God knows Whoopi's going to hit on it again and again, it's about choice. And so he's saying, I let this happen. I made the wrong choice, and I could have been something better. So yes, I'm going to call myself Hawk and then blow my brains out. Yeah, again, all of that feels very well-earned. And yeah, I agree with you. That's nice. Now, were they always fated to fail? Because, you know, if you're Flag, like, you would be thinking this is how you're taking out Boulder. But we've already seen, since episode six, he's got a different game in town. He is calling on a pyromaniac to go get a nuclear warhead. I was so excited when we got to the beginning of episode six. That episode opens up with Trash Can Man. And like, I jumped up, put my arms up. And then he, he's got to jerk off at his explosion. No, it is a little weird to see Ezra Miller in Mad Max clothes. <laughs> that was weird. He's running around like in, in yeah bondage gear and like tidy whities that are very dirty. <laughs> Acting like it's Police Academy 2 and he's going to take the role from Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> like... He uses the voice. <laughs> that voice is so Bobcat that... Yeah, it is. It's. is. I'm sure that was a reference point for him. What is he doing the with vo- his jaw? Yeah, he's like <laughs> jutted out. And you know, I'm not going to say it's wrong. I feel like all of these scenes are weirdly compelling in a way that Matt Frewer has always seemed dopey and exaggerated. Again, this is God and the devil in New Vegas and post-apocalypse, and yet somehow Trash Can Man still fills out a place in this miniseries to me. I wish that they'd given Trash a little more time. He is one of my favorite characters. Here, we just see, like a South Park montage-ish thing of flames and you burned old lady's pension check trash. And that's all we get except for him blowing up fuel tanks and jacking off to it. I wanted more of trash instead of just being like, 
he's weird and he's going to be brought in late. I would have liked to have seen him brought in earlier and have a little more purpose because this Ezra Miller, the way it's being played, you need a leash. You don't need to give him a mission. <laughs> yeah. Or if they would have just set up New Vegas as more Mad Max, you know, you got this woman and she got like this big feathery, I, I guess what the dancers in Vegas would wear, those big feather headdresses. That's the rat woman. It's Fiona Dorif. Brad's daughter. Daughter of Chucky. She was in a couple Chucky movies. Oh, okay. Rat woman this time. Very progressive. But if we would have had more stuff like that in New Vegas where it's just more outlandish, I think a trash can man wouldn't have stood out so much in this one. But yeah, I needed a little bit more craziness or explain this character a little bit more. Not a whole lot of time given to him. I actually feel like it's coming in, if anything, a little bit early because, again, you're waiting for Boulder to blow up because your wife is going to do the job. Why are you trying to load up a jet with a nuclear warhead? That tells me you don't believe in her. Well, what the goal was, what Flag's mission to them was, was kill the witch, Mother Abigail, and her five puppets. So, you know, new leaders could have risen. Flag's ultimate goal was... It was shown better, actually, in the earlier miniseries. He mentions here airplanes are being readied, but we got to see him get the Air Force ready, and he was going to do an airstrike on Boulder. I mean, we get a shot of an airplane. A shot. Yeah, that's all I needed. I got the message. I don't think we need to belabor the point if they're never actually going to get in the jet, and that's never going to become part of the climax. Really, it wouldn't be interesting to actually think they'd get in the jet and play it up to the point where you think this is actually going to happen? Look, Arnie, I don't even know what it means if Boulder gets bombed. Like, what does it mean for this story? Like, what does it mean for God? I don't know. This film hasn't set up. Oh, you do. It means the faithful. That means there's no more good people left if we blow up Boulder? Correct. That's what it means. I don't buy that, though. I guess you have to buy into everyone living in Vegas or Boulder. Like, and I just, I never accept that. Yes. The polarities of good and evil are two cities. And so, yes, if, if we, we have a nuclear warhead, again, I'm not sure you really go this route. I really feel like, you know, no nukes was a 70s thing. Not to say that we couldn't all be irradiated. It's still with us. But I just feel like that as the way the world would end is we're more afraid of pandemic than we are of a nuke at this point. So it's weird they're going there. I'm still good with anti-nuke messages. I still think there's a lot of rogue nukes out there. I'm good with this as a plot device if it were played up more. I just think that you have to believe there's a chance of the nuke hurting New Boulder. And the way that Ezra Miller is playing it here... I'm going to say it, Matt Frewer, better than Ezra Miller. No. No. <laughs> you, you can say it all you want, but it's definitely not true. Like, it is. Matt Frewer was awful. Awful. And so is Ezra Miller, unwatchably awful. I kind of enjoy what he's doing. Yeah, no, I like when he finally meets Flag. I think he's ready to suck his dick. Like, he's <laughs> so infatuated with Flag. He puts his head in his lap. It feels very sexual. Like, he realizes this is the devil and he's worshiping him. Or like he's a puppy or something. But yeah, he's like, you know, helps him fix the fireplace flue. And like, yeah, you just, here's the thing. You say this for season two, right? Season one is, oh, my Nadine plan didn't work. And that's the end of the season. And then you come back and you write a 10 episode arc in which we're going to nuke the Boulder Free Zone. Like, I feel like you expand it into a series. These are two different plots that don't mesh well together. Then it should be two five-episode series. I mean, you can do that on pay streaming. 
It shouldn't be two 10-episode series. They don't have enough for 10 episodes in this one. I do believe that you could have expanded and created new storylines for the characters in Boulder. What I'm hearing, I think, from both of you is, I don't really care about the people. I want some action. I don't care about the people we're focusing on. I wish there was more of other people. Like, who is this Ray who came in and told Nick about Mother Abigail coming back? Yeah, she's going to be picked to go to New Vegas. I'm like, what? <laughs> but, Stuart, it's not that I don't care about the people. This movie's not giving me a reason to care about them. And a lot of times, it doesn't have to be action-action, but you have conflicts yes. and drama and that kind of stuff, and I don't feel that here. There are little moments. We've talked about those little moments, but I don't feel like there's... Anything that really is making me root for any of these characters, like they did something so cool or they outsmarted a bad guy, like I haven't seen any of that. I have no reason to care about them. They try. I mean, again, the whole thing with Harold Lauder's basement and Larry trying to get in there, but he messes up the chess pieces. Not that it would matter if he didn't, because Harold had a camera that would have told him, so that was needless. But then Franny going down there in the basement and him locking her in, in a room with a window. So she just breaks the window and gets out. They're trying to give us conflict and it just isn't working. It's not interesting stuff. They have big themes going on here. Franny breaking a window to find out what we already know he's doing isn't satisfying. What I suggested before, and I'm going to stand by, what would be a really interesting season to explore, season three, maybe, or maybe season two, is if everything is about this walk, if everything is about proving to God that you have faith in him and that he'll carry you, that's what we want to watch, right? Yes. When Mother Abigail comes back and says, you four go, and Ray must be like, me? What the Right. <laughs> How did I become part of this clique? Yeah, it's uh, you cut her out, right? Right. Nobody's talking, no backstory. It's just, she happened to be in the room when Mother Abigail said, go get the four who matter. And because you are here, guess what? You get to go die too. <laughs> yeah. Or, or whatever. I mean, again, the way she teases it is, one of you four is not going to see the end of the journey, which, by the way, sounds like one of you is going to die along the way, but it's actually the person that doesn't see the end of the journey that lives. So that's the joke of it. But I do feel like there is an opportunity to think about what is happening in between Boulder and New Vegas? And what kind of people would you meet? And what kinds of things would you see? No one lives in between the two. I want there to be people in between. And I want these interactions. I've been arguing for that the whole time. I'm okay with them not encountering people per se. But a lot of time was spent in the book with those four having their conversations about faith. And there's a little of it here. V way too little. Very little. I was shocked how little talk there is because that's all this miniseries is about. Like, let's get to the meat and then it's chicken wings. Yeah, they have Glenn, who is an atheist, who is like, well, I may be an atheist, but I'm still out here, you know, going on this walk with all of you, having some scenes of them camping, discussing moralizing. I mean, it may not sound like people talking is the kind of action I want, but I would love anything that involves character and suspense and makes me like these people more. No, but I don't want them to sit around and give me 15 minutes of what their personal view on God is. No, I want drama, which means 
that I want them to experience things on the road. Like that's what a road movie does. You start off at the beginning of a road movie, you're one thing. By the end of it, you are transformed. And so that I can believe that they could transform New Vegas by arriving there. It's just a real mistake to turn it into basically one montage to Tom York, Radiohead. Good song, though. One of the best music choices in the series. But yeah, you want tests of faith, those kind of things to happen during this journey. Have their faith put be put to the test, and maybe one does turn away, and, and the other three go, and we see what happens to the one that lost their faith. Like, you gotta pay this journey off. Like, this is called The Stand, but it's The Stand is really this walk to Vegas. This is them making their stand, and so it should prove something, and it proves nothing to me except uh, fall down, break your leg, and you get to live. All the rest are gonna die. Like, don't make it is is the message here. If you want to live, don't actually do what God says. It's where Stephen King's writing is the weakest, and it shows where the opportunities improvement really could be, because he has built everything up to the idea that this is super important. But yeah, it's really one event. The road has been buckled by what, an earthquake? I guess. A giant crash. Yeah, I don't know how that got caused by a pandemic. It's been like seven months, eight months. Has it? I don't even know how much time has passed. Yeah, we saw the one useful thing that that judge character did was she crossed off a date on a calendar that said November, and they know that they're going to be getting to Vegas by February, which is the due date for Franny's baby. So, yeah, I would say that this is all three or four months of walking. Yeah, I mean, I figured it out that one time. It's like 290 hours if you don't stop. Now, I don't know how far they make it before Lloyd shows up to pick them up. I mean, Lloyd knows to go get them, but I'm sure that they walked hundreds of miles. Lloyd didn't drive to Boulder. Yeah, I think they were in in Nevada by the time Lloyd showed up. Or southern Utah, at least. Yeah, the scenery definitely looked like Nevada desert. Yeah, so again, it's like, if this is your Lord of the Rings, you can't have Frodo, like, step out of his hobbit hole, meet Gollum, and then he's there. Like, that doesn't know. You have to do lots of things because the road is the journey. And we're expected to believe that Stu believes he is in the valley of the shadow of death. He will quote Psalm 23, and that will be important for reasons... In the next episode, it will inspire Larry as he goes into New Vegas and confronts the evils and the end of his life. Yeah, we get a scene that does feel very written for today's audience where Rat Woman is playing judge on like the people's court. Yeah, I love that kangaroo court scene. It felt like something out of Natural Born Killers. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was a little bit over-the-top social commentary. Oh, yeah. It it was something out of a better movie, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But this is where Glenn says too much, and Lloyd finally pulls the trigger. Right. He baits him by being killed, by being a martyr. Again, this is really the only way that, like... Like, people are heroic in this, is that they either take their life or, you know, I I think that's it. Like, every heroic act is seen as suicide of some form. And Glenn is basically committing suicide by dying on camera. And that's supposed to horrify this crowd. That's what sort of rings hollow, is we're expected to believe the courtroom believes Lloyd has gone too far when he guns down the smart ass. Oh, the the fact that, yeah, all these people in Vegas are all of a sudden going to be horrified by the death of innocent people, which I think they've seen a million times with these gladiator fights. None of this rings true. Yeah, it's just not set up. It just doesn't make sense to do what it wants to do. 
No, but I've always liked the line that King wrote, it's okay, Lloyd, you don't know any better. That could be a line that would shake faith, is that this dying man tells Lloyd, you're an idiot, and then Lloyd has to shoot him. It could shake some faith. Yeah, for Lloyd. I believe for Lloyd, just having to kill somebody after all of this anticipation, you know, on camera, you know, knowing the big man is watching him. Yes, I get for that character, it's the turning point that will make him good, really. He will end up being kinder to the two that are surviving. But first we have Queen Nadine also committing suicide because she suddenly realizes you know, she had this scene in the desert where she followed a trail of white flower petals, was seduced by Flag, and is she not expecting him to be a monster? I guess I'm surprised that she's surprised that, like, he kind of turns into a demon. When she's alone in the desert, and she suddenly thinks she's in the penthouse, and they have the sex scene, we see Flag for who he truly is. He has a brief moment of becoming, like, darkness from legend. You guys keep talking about Lord of the Rings. This was the only time I thought Lord of the Rings because he looks like an orc. (laughs) He just, his true form, I think he's an orc. It's better than how it looks in the original miniseries. That that was bad when he does that little demon transformation. But I don't, yeah, it's weird because I thought she knew she had made a deal with the devil. She's doing that seance stuff, which is tied to evil. So I thought she knew. I don't know why she would think that he would be a human being. So it's weird that she suddenly has this understanding that, oh, I'm giving birth to an abnormal baby. Like, well, no shit. He just impregnated you last night and you have a giant baby bump that's writhing, like with like tendrils, like coming through your dress. So yeah, I didn't understand that because I thought the whole turn was she's going to see her reflection. Like she turns into a corpse, right? Like Larry's going to see her and like, you, you got to see yourself. All of this feels less rush than the 94 one where like Laura San Giacomo really just all of a sudden is diving off the side of the building. Yeah, I guess I just wanted one more believable moment of rejection. Like I guess like now that we're here at the end, it's really important that we understand that in death, these characters have made a commitment to their faith. And I just, it feels like she's just worried about a C-section and jumps out the window. Her pregnancy wasn't like super fast, right? Because she has sex in the desert. And then when we see her next, she's greeting the three travelers from Boulder and she looks ready to pop. But this is telling us months have passed, not that like she got laid last night and is ready to give birth today. Not nine months, though. Yeah, it's not a normal pregnancy. It's been two or three months. But yeah, I mean, I thought she was about to give birth. It's like she's having the pains of birth. She is. And then that just goes away as she stands up. And then the fact that she can break the glass on a 43rd floor penthouse window. Well, she uses the magic rock. Yeah. Yeah. See, I think this is when you ask, like, what does Flag really want? I think that by having this child, it would usher in something. I don't know. It gets undersold. Wow, wouldn't it be great if they told us in in the movie that made it a plot point in the first place? If they told us what what the outcome could be? Are you mad at Stephen King or are you mad at the filmmakers? If this is a problem in the book, then I'm mad at Stephen King and these spineless writers and producers that won't fix problems from the book. It's in Stephen King's book. It is more clear It's still a little nebulous. Yeah, then make Flag a character and do something interesting. I mean, Sauron is a 
fiery eye and has more character than Flag here. I know what Sauron wants more than Flag, and he can't speak. Yeah, I feel like the actor himself is sometimes he's Marlboro Man, sometimes he's Trump, sometimes he's Nicholson, but not Shining Nicholson, more like Nicholson's Joker, when he's like, cancel the nursery, Lloyd, you know, like... That's just, such a weird line, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that he knows what he's supposed to be doing because it isn't a character, you know? And like one time I'm eating someone in a glass elevator and the next time, yeah, I'm, I'm making quips. That was a great scene when they killed the judge who was a nobody character, but we got to see that Flag is dangerous. And when he rips that guy apart in the elevator and is just beating the crap out of him and walks out with the guy's heart in his hand, I'm enjoying that. I enjoyed that too, but it's not consistent. What I'm saying is that we haven't had a very consistent idea of what Flag is or what he wants. It is for Stephen King to throw out a bunch of things at the wall, everything, but I do agree that it would be very nice and compelling to have people go in there and surgically remove the best stuff and put it in a context where it's even better than it is on the page. It wouldn't be that hard to do. One of my problems with this telling of the story is specifically the fact that when Glenn is shot, Flag falters and has trouble landing. And I'm like, what is taking away his power? I would like for it to have been less of guesswork that he's kind of like Freddy. His powers come from people believing in him. And as people doubt him, he loses his powers. I mean, as it is, I have a little bit of correlation, but not a whole lot. And he then just has a little trouble floating from now on, but he did rip that guy up and he finally is on the trail of Tom Cullen. I mean, he hears about the moon man and when he tries to see the third person, all he can see is the moon. So it's time for Tom to get out of town by hiding in a body truck. Yeah, which we never see him exit. We never see him like escape from. It's just, okay, he got out and he's going to show up at the very end with Stu. Right. Yeah. I, you know, we wouldn't want him to die here in Vegas. It wouldn't be the right fit for what they've done with that character. So I'm glad that he got out by by whatever means. And didn't accomplish anything. <laughs> well, he accomplishes bringing Stu home. So if you care about Franny and Stu being together, you think Tom and Kojak. Yeah, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Gotta finish off in Vegas. It does feel very truncated. I mean, we've spent seven episodes with Build Up, and we get to episode eight, and it's called The Stand. And I'm like, wait, so we have to wrap all this up in 48 minutes. The last episode is only 48 minutes long. I wanted more of the showdown in Vegas, more back and forth, more of, you know, flag torturing or doing something to try to get information or try to plan this public execution just showing that people are losing their faith in him and instead all i've got here is one episode where they're gonna just rush through and the next thing i know ray who i've never really known about and larry the last surviving character that matters in vegas are being tied to a swimming pool that is slowly going to fill up yeah right from the batman 66 playbook uh, like that'll take forever we've talked about crucifixion we've had gladiators and they're gonna go with this way to kill them like the least interesting way 
It is strange that they didn't do the crucifixion. I mean, that's what you're going for with your religious analogies. Yeah. It's what they did in book, last miniseries. So the swimming pool, I don't understand why. I mean, it, it, it finally justifies the fact that there's been a drained swimming pool this whole time that people have been fighting in and that Nadine landed in when she jumped out the window. Yeah, now the, some, they somehow have super pipes to fill it up super fast so they could drown them. And I really do appreciate that they're trying to make it seem like some kind of EDM, like, rave experience where I... Is it Brian Adams' <laughs> Heaven, or is it just some song about heaven that is that is being piped to everyone, and Flag is getting his dance on, and speechifying that these are the new infection. We survived Captain Trips, and these people represent a new way that we could die, because they will take your freedom. I didn't hear Brian Adams. I'd have to go back and check that again. But this is the Skarsgård I wanted. He's finally given a chance to go a little bigger and show some charisma and show why people would follow him. I like his speech here. It's much better than anything he did as a talking billboard out of, honestly, Max Hedrum. He was like a blipvert. The choice was to follow Boulder and to have him be a slow discovery. I feel like we've had enough of New Vegas, frankly, from episode five and now episode eight, I've had my fill here and I get that he's hollow. I get that that he's vain, that he can't back up his claims, that everyone that works for him he betrays. And that like, yeah, all he can do to appeal to people is to say that like, I allow you to do whatever you want. That's all that he can promise. And if that's not enough for folks, then yeah, he's just a bunch of statues and Jumbotron images. There's just... There's nothing to him. He is like Freddy from the first Nightmare on Elm Street. That is exactly the way that Stephen King conceptualizes evil. It is a paper tiger. It can be easily vanquished when you renounce your faith in it. And in this case, you just have to recite Psalm 23. It seems kind of lame. Yeah, you said it, Stuart. Like, I've complained about this the whole show, and it's a problem with the book, I guess, a problem with the last miniseries, a problem with this one. Look... Do we see the hand of God come down? We actually do. I missed it the first time. I don't know if you guys caught this, but I watch, you know, we're going to see this because this is modern day. So like Fantastic Four, you can't have Galactus be a dude with a giant purple hat. It's just got to be a cloud. And so we see a storm come in and lightning strike. I rewound it because I'm like, there had to be a hand hidden somewhere. When that cloud is descending upon the inferno, this casino, you do see like fingers in a thumb shape. Like you, you see a hand shape in the clouds if you're looking. They got it in there. It's classier though this time. It is. It's much better this time. And it's much more like the book. In the last miniseries, they really made it the literal hand of God. In the book, it is more of a ball of electricity intended to be the hand of God. It's like when you put your, those globes that you, in science classes and museums where your hair gets all static cling when you put on it, it feels like the center of one of those. But this is, they're stepping on Larry's moment. Like, this is Larry's arc. Larry used to be a hedonist. He was just like all of them. And he wanted to be on billboards. He wanted to be flag. He wanted to be a pop idol rock star who gives a fuck. If he gave a speech explaining why... Rather than just recite Psalm 23, 
Is it his band or was it the song called Pocket Savior? Like you're telling us this is our little savior. Like this is our new Jesus Christ. He's going to say, tell us something to save our souls. And no, he doesn't. Instead of kneeling and drowning with dignity, he needed one great speech. That would have more power than all of these electric shock deaths that are, again, just feel like a real juvenile way of wiping the slate claim. And what's so weird is that at this point, like, the crowd has turned against Flag. They're still going to get struck. And the CGI of these people getting struck down is pretty poor, too. It's a little cartoony. It, it, it's fine for TV. Given the special effects of the last one, I was completely satisfied. And even L- Lloyd, like, gets, like, a pretty cool beheading because, like, there's these concentric circles, a chandelier that kind of snaps I felt bad for Lloyd. I felt like he he had repented, and nope, he's still going to get beheaded. Well, he may be dead, but who knows about the afterlife? His soul may be saved, yeah. Right, yeah. I, I think that he did redeem himself. The one that has always eternally will frustrate me, Flag wants to know, and I want to know, why does Trash bring the warhead into the casino? <laughs> why didn't he go to the airfield? Because he thought it was a way to honor Flag. That I mean, you know, he's he says, go bring me fire, and he brings him fire. Trash doesn't seem too smart. Like, he takes things pretty literal. Like, he, he brought him the fire. He didn't uh, take it to the plane like he was supposed to. He thought he was going to impress the boss with his, it, you know, making his own decisions. But it is a cool mushroom cloud. I'll give him that much. It's very satisfying to watch Inferno Casino explode. Artie, I, I, I don't know if any of those people on your Facebook group got this far into it. I, I wonder if this would make any sense to anyone that hadn't seen this before. Like, with, with that 90s miniseries, like, you, okay, it's literally the hand of God. Like, you know that. Like, it's not subtle this. It's kind of a storm. Like, I, I think this would be a little trickier to figure out. It might be too subtle because if you're not following from the previous versions and you're not really getting the themes of God, you might be like, where did this science fiction storm come from? But... In the end, it's like, it has to be God, you know? And I wish that maybe Larry had enough time before the water overtook him to say something about it. Yeah, Larry should have preached. Larry should have been able to proselytize the fall of this Sodom. Like, that is how it should go down. And I just feel like, again, this character could have easily wound up here as one of Flag's men. It would have been powerful to understand why he chooses to go the other way other than you have an end knowing that uh, I'm going to go to heaven and you're not, I guess. Anyway, we do kind of wrap all of this up rather quickly with the explosion. I think there's a cave-in, right? Stu is like buried under rubble and then Tom comes to his rescue. It's hard to really say. It's very dark and the Tom rescuing Stu bit is a little undersold because Tom shows up. Stu's like, hey, it's Tom. And the next time we see them, they're rolling into Boulder. Whereas in the book, it's 100 pages. In the last miniseries, it seems like it took a half hour. They have to stop due to the snow. Yeah, I don't want that. But I thought that was Flag, even though we just saw him supposedly blown up. I'm like, oh, is this Flag coming to get revenge on Stu now? But I guess it was just Tom showed up. But again, he was fighting suicide, right? Like, he's the one character that chooses not to kill himself. And uh, for that, he is noble. Because the dog talks him out of it. Yes, a dog talks him out of suicide. It feels like it should be coming to a close. So episode nine is interesting because 
We know it's Josh Boone directing again. We know this is Stephen King's new ending. So, like, the expectation is uh, high, frankly, for what King might feel like this has all been about. Yeah, I was wondering, I'm like, what do you do now? We got 50 more minutes? Like, what are we going to do? S- sit around and, and talk and, and more government building scenes? But no, we're going to end up doing another road trip. But this time we actually get to take a car. We don't have to walk. And this is out of the book as well. It ends with Franny being like, I want to go back to Maine. And I have some problems with that. First of all, Maine, much like Texas right now, is not where you want to be if there's no power. I mean, Maine gets cold. If you are starting a society over, I'd start more south. But they're going to take this baby. And I do like Fran's explanation of life is risk. There's risk if we stay here. So let's risk the baby's life and go to Maine. I I heard something else here, too. Like, I heard this place is turning bad. Like, we get this 4th of July barbecue. We know that it's been several months of happiness because, you know, she did deliver a baby that fought Captain Trips off. Like, it looked like it was going to die, and then it rebounded. And more babies have been born, and they didn't even contract the virus. So, like, everyone should be celebratory, but I sense that Fran is like, I don't feel safe here. Yeah, she gives some speech, like, we're soon going to have our first murder here. And, like, it's just, yeah, societies are always going to fall. So why did we just go through all this if we're just going to end up back here? Like, this is the interesting stuff to me when you're rebuilding society. Coming up with the laws and how are you going to learn from the past and try to improve. This this doesn't care about any of that stuff. We're just going to leave. Let's just go to Maine. No, and that's what I liked about Glenn, is Glenn was the one predicting all of this stuff and things. And so when they start discussing... We have our first people in jail, and pretty soon we're going to have our first murder. It's like, okay, that is a a bit much to just jump to. And why is this society bad? Are people coming from Vegas? Is it just people are bad? But this is no longer the utopia, so where is it going? Built into it is King's own skepticism about society and people in general. And we've seen it many times with small towns. The way that he portrays them is, we think that they're innocent, but in fact, they're full of rotten, selfish people, and, you know, given enough rope, give them some needful things, and they'll all kill each other. But that's my problem, is that's a whole storyline in and unto itself. Here, it's a sentence, and then we move on to the next scene. I would have liked to have seen something that upset her. Like, I feel like something, rather than have them discuss it, it would have been interesting for Fran to see behavior from people she admired that scared her and reminded her. I actually don't feel like she should be the character. It should be someone that got to see New Vegas should be recognizing elements of that. Maybe Tom. I mean, it's only Tom at this point. Is Tom going to be able to communicate that? I don't know, but you get what I'm saying. Like, you, it would be spooky to realize, hey, we made it, and then to start to see reflected in the people around you the very things you thought you had vanquished. So, yes, she for whatever reason, maybe she misses her, her hometown. Maybe, uh, you know, she's just chronically unhappy with wherever she is. She's going to make poor Stu pile into this camper and drive across the country and have this final battle with Flag. 
And I freaked out. When they show a title card saying they're in Nebraska and there's cornfields, and I'm wondering, what are they going to do for 50 minutes to wrap this up? I did think, oh, are they going to find a Children of the Corn Society? Are we, is Like, led by Flag? That's a crossover. Flag is Hubie. I thought they were going to do it. Hey, I thought so. Listen, there are fan theories that he who walks behind the rose was Flag. Yeah, it's clear. Yeah, I thought that's what they're going to reveal here. I debunked that when I did my review of the Children of the Corn story, but that is a fan rumor out there. When Kojak the dog goes to the cornfield and just stares at it and pulls out a doll, I'm like, oh shit, it's Malachi. Yes, there's children there, yes. Although we'd seen that doll before and we knew it was associated with Abigail. I didn't remember seeing it. It's weird. It's like we're the, everything, the music and the photography was all telling us be afraid. But at the same time, I'm like, well, I think it's just Whoopi Goldberg. So why why are we afraid? And the reason is, is because Annie's life is going to be put into jeopardy when she wants a drink of water. Yeah, this is what King wrote, that Franny's going to fall in a well and Stu's going to get a flat. Here's why this is added. Now, I'm going to give you what they say, but first I'm going to give you what I say. What I say is, just like they were sure to add diversity to the cast and race change and gender bend some characters, Ralph became Ray. No woman actually did anything important in this story. I mean, they tell Franny, you're pregnant, go to the kitchen, you don't get to walk to Vegas. Yeah, I mean, you don't want a pregnant woman to walk to Vegas, that is not good for the baby. That's a trial of faith that I want to see. Yeah, Fran just stays home and has a baby, while the others, including unimportant Ray, go to Vegas. And so, I think this is some studio executive somewhere going, in this day and age, we need a woman to be part of the victory, and... Maybe they consulted King. King says after 30 years, he's finally gotten a chance to write the ending he wanted where Fran got to take her stand. Now, I don't think he really wanted that ending for 30 years. He's rewritten the book many times. He could have put it in the 1990 edition. Maybe he wanted to starting in 1992. I guess that is 30 years ago. But I do feel undue outside pressure from someone to tell King... Fran needs to do something, too, so let's add on this epilogue. But, my God, after a nuke going off, anticlimactic doesn't even begin. This is like the worst reunion special ever. And you're saying this is her big girl power moment? She's laying in a well almost dead. I get it. There's the horrors. Like, Flag is going to come to her in a vision, and, like, your baby's going to die, and Stu's not going to make it in time to save the baby. Like, okay, that's kind of scary, but it's all just going on in her head, which makes the stakes seem not as high. I'll be kinder. I I feel like you guys are attacking it. Anticlimactic, maybe, but... But I I think it's tied into the biblical themes. I mean, if we think about the Garden of Eden and Eve and and temptation, it feels right that we've kind of gone back into that jungle setting and that it's the woman making the choice not to be tempted by the serpent. It is. And this is honestly the best Skarsgård has ever played Flag. I like Flag one-on-one seducing. He didn't do it very well 
with Nick. I don't think he pulled it off. He didn't have to do much with Lloyd because Lloyd was starving to death. But here, he's really selling it. Like, he is playing it like his character from True Blood. I want to kiss and I want to look through your eyes. Yeah, again, the the temptation to live. I mean, what's kind of frustrating to me, that what I don't like about it, is that she ends up getting to live anyway. When I feel like the really the choice should be, do I want to live, touched by evil, or am I okay letting go? That's what the other people did, right? Like, that's what Larry did. So why does she suddenly get hoisted out with the reincarnation of Mother Abigail and Stu? Like, that, it feels like she should make the choice that I'm not going to live on Flag's terms. But then you'd have stakes, and the stand is anything but having stakes. <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying, and I guess I don't need to belabor it, because we're all on the same page. Yeah, no, it's totally unsatisfying to just wave her hand and heal this woman. Like, nothing is satisfying. Yeah, that should not happen. That should, At the very least, she should be crippled or, or have something that, like, stays with her. Like, I mean, sacrifice. No, but she's going to have five more babies. This Again, your girl power moment, you can have more kids. Yeah, and she'll live to see the grandkids. Oh, God. The fact that Mother Abigail reincarnated, and so Mother Abigail's death is meaningless because she's the guardian angel looking over these two— it hurts me to talk about this. It hurts me. And again, Skarsgård and Franny, when they're in their little jungle having their conversation, I like the performances. Yeah, I liked the scene until the resolution. That's what I would say. I really feel like this moment is weird and creepy. They get to the farmhouse and what's in the corn and all of that. I'm like, wow, this is so... Like, anything could happen. I have no idea, but it's these last five minutes that piss me off. The fact that Mother Abigail spoke to God, but other than that, and had some dream powers, but had nothing magical, but this little girl can wave her hand over Franny's body and also knows how to work a winch. I don't think Mother Abigail would know how to work a winch. But the fact that she just waves her hand and fixes Franny's body... Awful. Here's what I would have liked is if they had stayed in Boulder and Flag came to tempt her daughter. And that would be interesting. Because that would get into the idea that even though these characters might have dodged it, in the end, it's for every generation to face the same choice. And I think that's what they're getting at by saying that Mother Abigail has been reborn and we'll see the final scene that Randall Flagg is rebranding himself as the nude explorer Russell Faraday and, and indoctrinating indigenous people. The fact that he brought them up to Franny seemed a little off topic. Look, here's an indigenous tribe. None of them have even known of Captain Trips. But then he shows up to them and, yes, picks a new RF name. Anyone with the initials RF be suspect of in King Fiction. I mean, I, I kind of like this, the, the idea of this tribe that's been untouched by civilization. Now evil's going to come to them in a, a way they probably never, you know, conceptualized in, with Christian gods and devils and all that. I don't know. There's something interesting about that. But again, it's just kind of a teaser and, and stinger for this. It's not really an idea they're going to dwell on. I feel like it would be more satisfying happening in Boulder. I mean, I like the irony that the idea that Europeans, like, killed off the native people of America with disease. But, so you know, like, now these are the people that are immune to... Like, I get why you might write the scene, but ultimately I feel like it doesn't fit. It is not a good ending 
for what you've done. And I feel like you want to keep it with that free zone and you don't want the characters to leave and you want to, yeah, come to some kind of ambiguous feelings that good and evil outlive us and outlast us all. I mean, they love the line so much they repeat it twice, but the wheel turns, the struggle continues, and the command is always the same. But before we all fall down a well, Jacob, Stuart, do you recommend The Stand? Jacob. You know, Stuart, you talked about adapting King. It's it's a trap. Like, he's not going to let you go full Kubrick anymore on any of his works. And, you know, if adapting King is a trap, I, I honestly rather take my chances with one of Jigsaw's traps. I, I feel like in that game, I could at least probably keep my integrity. Like, it's frustrating when you see something with flaws. Like, if these are from the book, they're from the book. If it's from the screenplay, it's from the screenplay. I don't care where the flaws are from, but there's flaws, and it's obvious. Like, you want your characters to matter. You want actions to matter. You you want people to have motivations. And if your source material doesn't have that that you're adapting, then you change it. You fix it. You, you adapt it for the screen. And so whether it's King's fault or the screenwriter's fault, I, I don't care who it is, honestly. But this, unfortunately, because this is a better, I'll say it right now, this is better than that 90s miniseries. If I had to watch one of these again, even though this one's longer, I'm putting on the 2020-2021 The Stand versus that 90s one. And the reason why is this miniseries has more of a polished sheen to it. And so maybe I'm being a little bit ageist because this is just newer. The acting's better. But the other thing is I f- did find little moments where I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this now. I'm, I, well, do I want to watch the next episode based on, you know, the, this little conversation they had? Yeah, I want to see how that plays out. Now, if I didn't have to watch all nine episodes, I probably would have made it three in and then quit because I didn't find it very compelling. But I did find throughout the series as I watched all nine episodes, they did have their little moments. I just wished these little puzzle pieces belonged all to the same puzzle and made a bigger picture. Instead, it, it stays fragmented most of the time. And I it's just not very clear that this is his magnum opus for King, but someone's got to figure out how to adapt it. It's not sticking to the words in the book because... Whatever those words are, whatever sense they make in that book, it's not making sense here. And so ultimately, this is still unsatisfying as a whole. I I did toy with the idea of recommending it because there are so many little moments that I did like. But ultimately, if you like to just be in a a universe in film or or fiction, TV, novels, whatever, this might work for you. It's just you want to spend some time around people and and see their life and this crazy scenario that then maybe it works. But for me, I I want a more cohesive story. I mean, so maybe it's one of those things that just it came out too late. It it missed its opening where in in lighter times you could just have fun with this stuff. But I need characters whose actions matter and and plots and and just understand people. And this still hasn't fixed those problems I had with the 90s miniseries. Uh, So maybe third time's a charm. I don't know. Well, I'm sure we'll get there at some point. But mild not recommend for The Stand. Stuart. Yeah, The Stand is imperfect. I mean, I've never considered it to be one of King's best novels. But I do recognize it's maybe his most epic Like, it is bursting with so many wild characters and these themes that you want to just delve into in tense situations. You do feel that it could be configured, that someone could take those pieces and really make it a great work of art. But I... I recognize at this point. I mean, it hits me in the face every time I go down those paths. King doesn't care enough to shape his stories to be as good as they could be. He's got too many other novels in him. He wants to move on to the next idea. 
all of his works feel unfinished. He just leaves them with bad endings and unrealized themes. And so I accept that any faithful adaptation, no matter how much money you pour into it, how great the actors are, will be imperfect. I knew that I was going to be intrigued and I knew that I was going to be unsatisfied by this miniseries. So really, my judgment of it is, how good can they keep that ratio? How many times am I going to at least be engaged with the material? The surprise is, I can honestly say that Mick Garris did a better job with my favorite stuff in the novel. That night one Captain Trip stuff, where we had the fear of the pandemic wiping off the earth, is where I would want to to spend more time. It is the stuff that is the most emotionally gripping and horrifying. And I do feel like that's a piece you wouldn't want to lose from this epic. And this one has made the choice to lob all of that off and keep everything very stoic and serious in thinking about God and destiny. And so by planting its feet firmly in King's theology, I mean, it's hobbled. You're right, Arnie, to say that it's been kneecapped with a with a crowbar by saying we're going to focus on what King writes the worst. But I'm also happy to say that I don't feel like it falls apart. That largely because, as you say, Jacob, there has been an uptick in production design and acting and everyone is working really hard to transform this big messy book into something competent and moving and occasionally gets there, I'm going to declare this a perfectly acceptable season of Walking Dead. It feels like when I watch that show, this sort of like post-apocalyptic soap opera that goes in and out of being engaging. And if you are okay with the messy, unresolved themes and just like to kind of think about what the world might be like post-pandemic, I think that there's enough here that I can say mild recommend. It's definitely better than the 94 miniseries. And it left me thinking. I did, rather than, than walk away mocking what it tried to do, I spent a lot of time days later thinking about all that it was and all that it could be. So that's success to me. I don't know if thinking about all the ways something could be better is a success in and of itself, but I was on the fence on this one because I watched the first couple episodes and I'm like, you've taken away my favorite part, Captain Trips. So what are you going to give me in exchange? Okay, what you've given me are better production values by far. Better acting, by and large. And by the time we were bringing in Heather Graham in episode two, I'm like, okay, you're giving me stuff. The other one didn't. I like this. And then, yeah, episodes four, five, and part of six just really started to drag. And so I was like, okay, this is, it's not sustaining its runtime. But how will it finish off? Well, it finished off better than the original one. Ball of Lightning, better than Finger of God. Skarsgård's speech better than Randall Flagg turning into my demon lover. I mean, and Nadine, certainly a much better interpretation overall. So I was really, really on the fence until that shitty ass ninth episode where it just was so dumb and so Mother Abigail fixes everything that I'm like, all right, you've made my choice for me. Very easy. It's a not recommend. And 
I recommended the McGarris version and I didn't recommend this one. I have to say his version, worse production values, worse acting, more enjoyable, shorter. I will never watch this again. I will watch McGarris's version again. I've seen McGarris's version a dozen times. I will watch it again. This, I will never sit through again. If they had shaved three hours out of this, both in some dull content and some runtime, maybe I would. But no, this is a not recommend. I got to give some tough love to the stand. Which they could do. I mean, if they cut Golden Years down, they could cut this down for some kind of home release where it looks more like a four-hour movie or something. Like, here's the thing. Yeah, they made a drama. It's not fun. And so it's not going to look like McGarris's because McGarris makes cartoons. You know, like that's... That's what he does. And when he ruins The Shining, we hate him for it. But what you're saying is sometimes his campiness is more enjoyable. He made a horror movie. I like a horror movie. And the end is, I don't know that any version of The Stand that does Captain Trips well would get a not recommend for me. The fact that they just paled away, whether it's my theory that they edited it out, or whether it's just coincidence that they decided not to make a film about a pandemic. I don't know why you'd edit it out. Contagion became the number one movie back then. I mean, everybody wanted that. I can tell you, they they did not want to say that the virus was man-made in the era of COVID. That rings too many bad vibes. Well, they ruined their show because of it. But they said it. They didn't emphasize it, but they said it. And so why not show it? Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm just really disappointed. But, I mean, it is a weaker not recommend because I did have to think on it. It wasn't until the ninth episode that it was really clear to me. Before that, it was just kind of whatever. There's so much whatever television I watch often tied into other things. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., whatever. This show, whatever. Yeah, TV's disposable. Not in this age, Stuart. You're 20 years ago. It's a relatively new concept that we think of TV episodes in the same way that we think of movie and structure. But we are in the age of prestige television, and this is nothing to be proud of. And yet it's still, if not my favorite Stephen King TV work, a close second. This and that Rob Lowe, Salem's Lot are about as good as I've seen network TV pull off. Oh, geez. Yeah. His TV has not been great. But uh, they're not going to stop. I know that we'll be returning to Stephen King in a little while. We are taking a break because we want to get to some Eddie Murphy and go to America with him. Yes, there's a new movie coming out. And not in theaters, but on Amazon Prime. Is it? It's coming to America. That's already come out. Coming to America. Ah, but it's coming to America. Oh, like most internet commenters, I got my two, two, and two wrong. (laughs) Although, if you look at the trailer, it looks like coming to Zumunda. Yeah, it does. (laughs) We're going to be talking about, honestly, one of my all-time favorite comedies. I know we did Trading Places, which is another one. John Landis, Eddie Murphy. If it hadn't been for Beverly Hills Cop 3, I'd say they make magic together. Yeah, Trading Places is good. I don't really remember coming to America too much. Just soul glow, but... I'm interested to go back. And if you're looking for more pseudo-topical movies, we just started our spring donation drive. Our first podcast went out last Friday. It is the Platinum Series. We reviewed White House Down, and this Friday we review its doppelganger, Olympus Has Fallen. That's the Gerard Butler one. 
I haven't seen either before now, but strangely feel compelled, given recent events, to see what Hollywood has to say about terrorists storming our capital. And we will get back to King, I, if if not to the Children of the Corn prequel, probably the next one in the series that we'll cover is Dolores Claiborne, which is always billed as one of those little gems. It didn't make a big box office splash, but I always hear it's one of the better Stephen King movies. It's got Kathy Bates again, Jennifer Jason Lee, another Rob Reiner production. So not horror? Yep, I have seen it. It's the sister novel to Gerald's Game, so take that what you will. If you consider Gerald's Game horror, maybe? Yeah, it's a, I think, women's story set against the eclipse, told in all in first person. And finally, since we're discussing adaptations of books, if you're one of those people who uses Audible for audiobooks, no, I'm not trying to sell you an Audible subscription like a lot of podcasts do. Oh, I thought I thought you were going to give us a code, coupon code. No, I'm going a different way with this. Audible now has podcasts. So for a long time, we've asked people give us five-star reviews and written reviews on iTunes. We still need that. It still helps our show. But Audible is a totally new podcasting arena. One person has already gone and given us a five-star review. I want to thank you for that. And if you are somebody who uses Audible, you can search for Now Playing Podcast in there. And we'd really appreciate a five-star review that helps us be seen by more Audible users. So thank you in advance for that. And finally, I want to thank a few of our patrons who have been listening to us live as part of their patron reward. They got to hear us record this live. No, it was fun to have an audience. It definitely, uh, it was, we got to meet them uh, uh, before the show. And yeah, it, was, it set a really nice tone. So Josh, Brian, Brent, Ula, Thank you guys for coming out. Thank you for your support of our show. Many of you guys have already picked podcasts for us to do. But yeah, if you want to be able to listen to us live once a month, that is a patron pledge of $75 or more. And we know it's a lot, but it also gets you all of our donation shows, including the Platinum level and the M. Night Blue level and the Cruising level and the Purging level. So all of that's available at nowplayingpatron.com. And thanks to all of our patrons for their support. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And now, Now Playing has taken its stand. for listening to this episode of Now Playing. You've done it, Nick. You brought him through. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Well, don't tell me that's all you got. Hear a full review of the original Stephen King source material at our sister podcast, booksandnachos.com. There, Arnie is reviewing every book and short story by King. Harold, I'm going to read this just as soon as I get a chance. Thanks. In the meantime, congratulations. And also, come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. You're all welcome here. Now come on in, let us visit a spell. 
In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. You come see me, Nick. You and all your friends. You got to hurry, though. In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and RoboCop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. You talk about this thing in here like you were outside of it. I just wanted you to get a little taste of what it's like on the inside. How'd you like it? Support from listeners like you. Help keep now playing operating. <laughs> All that wisdom and I ain't rich yet. <laughs> you can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Alright, it for you! For you! Now Playing Podcast is produced and edited by Arnie Carvalho. It's dirty fucking work. As far as I'm concerned, it's the most important job in the zone. Associate produced by Jason Latham. We can't fuck this up. Do you understand? We cannot let him down. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. I can hear! I can talk! The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. Hey, Bluto, you ever heard of a little number called Freedom of Speech? Bill of Rights? Any of that ring a bell? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Let's just say I'm from Missouri. And I don't always take the word of people I just met as gospel. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2021, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. This is what God wants of you. Be true. Stay. You're going to be the bride of... Actually, what was what was the actual message that got scrawled on the floor? I wrote it here. Um, it's not, this is how we do it. I wrote down Montel Jordan, <laughs> this is how we do it. I'm like, that would be weird. Oh, Nadine will be my... <laughs> you know, she had this scene in the desert where she followed a trail of white flower petals, was seduced by flag, and... It made me think of Coming to America. I know we're reviewing it shortly, but I was like, did Akeem's rose bearers drop white flowers everywhere? Yeah, you are thinking about Coming to America. <laughs> um, is, is... Ah!